Hi, everyone. Once again, we need to start off the show by acknowledging and eulogizing some beloved figures in the anime industry that sadly have passed away and are no longer with us. And it is a very, very sad occasion to have so many incredible people that sadly have left us to have to talk about and acknowledge. First among them being Keiko Nobumoto, who passed away on December 1st after a battle with esophageal cancer at the age of 57. Keiko Nobumoto is perhaps best known for her writing work on Cowboy Bebop, Tokyo Godfathers, Macross Plus, and the series that she created and wrote, Wolf's Reign. It's certainly undeniable that her series and her films that she has written are all bona fide classics, all some of the very best of the best series and films uh, beloved by fans for decades now. You can argue for sure that she is one of Shinichiro Watanabe's most important collaborators, and without her touch, her writing insights, and the delicate way she can write, you know, particular relationships between men and explore the fragility of masculinity, like a lot of the series that Watanabe had written, especially Bebop, would not be as strongly remembered or as deeply nuanced as they ended up being. And that goes true for her collaborations with other creators like Satoshi Kon and Tokyo Godfighters. Her writing, it really brought to life. Uh, it really was so evocative and of like just all the characters that she was able to, you know, guide through her pen. And, you know, a lot of them personal favorites of mine as well. So I was definitely very saddened hearing the news of her passing. And I have just started checking out Wolf's Reign. Uh, I had not actually seen it before. So I just started watching it. And yeah, it's uh, it's an immaculately beautiful show. And also a very smartly, delicately written show that definitely shows off some her best qualities. And as like her personal passion project, yeah, it's like her interest as a writer and her strings are right, really do show through so well in that. So, yeah, I have really have been just kind of revisiting all of her work in one way or another recently. Like I saw my cross plus in the theater is rewatch Kogu Godfathers and episodes of Bebop. So I think what's so remarkable is that Nobuboto, when you look at her credits, she really, she's only done a few different things comparatively to perhaps others in the industry but like everything she wrote is just like a genuine classic so she really left behind an incredible legacy and an immaculate body of work but we also sadly have to talk about other people with great pedigrees and iconic work that they've left behind especially people who have been like the voice that has been ringing in our ears for many iconic series one such person being Joji Inami, who passed away on December 3rd at the age of 90. And Inami, of course, is best known as the narrator of Dragon Ball. Basically, every iteration of the series, from the original to Z, GT, and Super, he was the narrator of the show. He was the voice at the beginning and oftentimes every episode, like telling us, introducing us to the adventures of Goku and getting us excited and looking forward to seeing what the journey would bring that week. In addition to his work as a narrator, he was also, of course, King Kai in the series, and 
played Dr. Briefs and Bobbity as well. And beyond Dragon Ball, he was also many other very beloved characters like Itamon and Getaro, Totosain and Yasha, Gonfall in One Piece, Shinai and Digimon. So truly, Yanami has played some very beloved characters and he's generally just a voice that brings to mind fond memories. And yeah, it's just another sad thing to process that We'll never hear him really be able to introduce us to the entries of Goku and his friends again. But we will still have just the incredible body of work that he has left behind in the series he's worked on. As well playing characters and as narrator of the Dragon Ball franchise for decades up until this point. Someone else who left behind an indelible mark on the series he worked on was Hiroshi Arata, a classic Gekiga manga creator and also the designer of the Akira logo, the logo for the Akira manga. He passed away sadly on December 11 due to heart failure at the age of 84. And yeah, that Akira logo is just so iconic, so entwined in our image of the series when you bring the series to mind. And it's sad to have, like a, again, a Gekiga artist of his talent and the designer of his talents passed away. Sadly, I have not checked out many of his Gekiga manga, but I definitely am interested in checking them out because he seems like he left behind a great body of work and definitely has left behind like a great sense of iconography that has been passed through Akira and the other series he has designed for. And sadly, we've come to the last person that we need to give our respects to. And this is especially tragic because this person died so young. And that was actress and singer Sayaka Kanda, who passed away at the age of 35 in a circumstance that is currently being investigated as a possible potential suicide. She was found lying on the 14th floor patio of Hotan Sapporo at about 12 55 p.m. on the 18th, and uh, she was taken to a hospital and pronounced dead uh, just a few hours later. And again, she was uh, just incredibly young, just 35, and she was daughter of an actor-singer couple. She made her professional entertainment debut just at the age of 15 in commercial work, and she made her stage debut at the age of 18. She was known as the voice of Anna in the Japanese dub of Frozen. She continued that role in basically every project uh, involving my character since, and she also was uh, Yuna in Sword Art Online Ordinance Scout, the kind of AI original character in that film, uh, who is like the center of kind of the main mystery conspiracy in that film, and then you know reprised that role in the when that character returned in the Sword Art Online Alicization film. Perhaps what I best uh, know and remember fondly for is her work as part of the Truce Trick duo that sang the opening theme for My Love Story, which is such a, a wonderful, charming song that I can answer that, you know, always put me in the mood to watch My Love Story back when it was airing uh, and still have fond memories of that song. And yeah, it's just another very sad circumstance. To see someone so talented who did some really great, memorable work. And 
it just seemed to have a bright career, like just to have passed away in such circumstances. As it is just tragic to have lost all of these incredibly talented and wonderful people who definitely have left an impact on the industry and the impact on so many fans who have loved and appreciated their work. And once again, it's just a sad thing to have to report on, but it is important to acknowledge them. It's important to eulogize and pay respects and remember them and, you know, celebrate them even in their passing for the work that they have done and how that has impacted us and how that will be remembered by us and remain as a legacy and testament to them in the future and the time to come. And it's just a sad thing, once again, to begin the year on. But once again, I would just like to ask everyone to just take a moment of silence to pay our respects and wish our best to their loved ones, their friends, their family, and everyone whose lives they touched in an incredibly positive, powerful way. This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 185. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lum Ramiyasha. And today we are doing another Simulpub Roundup. And we've got a dozen new series to talk about on the show today. Not just from Shonen Jump, but also from Sozo Comics, Yen Press. Crunchyroll and Manga Plus and Mangamo. We have got reviews for Nagamo's four newest titles that we actually got a chance to preview even before they came on the app. So we definitely got our thoughts and opinions on what you can look forward to with these new Mangamo editions especially. And it's gonna be a fun one and a long one as there's a lot to talk about all of these series. And again, we got a dozen of them. <laughs> so this is one of our most stuffed Simulpus roundups to date. A good way to begin the year with a meaty discussion of some new things to look forward to in this new year. Yeah, yeah. This was definitely one of those cases where uh, we just couldn't really find the time to do some of these sooner, but that's okay because well, we're going to talk about them and we definitely have a lot to say about some of them. And uh, just real quick, just a big thank you to Mangamo for uh, giving us the opportunity to check out some of these series before uh, they were available on the Mangamo app. Uh, and yeah, because you know we've been wanting to check out more Mangamo stuff for a while. It just hadn't really had the chance to until now. So again, big thank you to them. And uh yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to talking about these, but uh, we do have some stuff to talk about at the top of the show. 
uh, before we get to any of that stuff, uh, just some just some quick Patreon stuff. Uh, first off, I want to thank everybody out there who is subscribed to our Patreon currently, because uh, without your guys' support, I don't know if you can hear the difference, but uh, I recently got a new microphone, and this is the first main episode of the podcast that uh, I'm recording using my new microphone. And basically, if it weren't for the people supporting us on Patreon, I wouldn't have been able to buy this mic. I just didn't really have the money out of pocket, unfortunately, last month to uh, replace my old microphone that was definitely starting to go. And uh, every time I tried to record with it on a particular setting, uh, it just recorded static. Uh, And yeah, I I just really want to thank everybody who, uh, again, on our Patreon, who uh, helped gave us enough money to help me replace my equipment. So, yeah, just we can't say it enough. Thank you. I really appreciate it, guys. Uh, this this is basically what we have our Patreon for. Yeah, your guys' support really helps the show out. It helps us pay for new equipment. It helps us pay our hosting costs and material costs. Really helps us continue producing the best show we possibly make. And once again, thank you guys so much for just helping making it all possible for us. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of hosting costs really quickly, so we did mention a few episodes ago at this point that because we're basically heading the costs on our own for the website and everything at this point, we've basically figured out how much money we do need every month to kind of help pay for this stuff. And that is being reflected uh, on our tier system, or I guess you'd say our goals in our Patreon. Uh, basically, at the moment, we are striving to earned about $50 a month just for hosting costs in particular. I think at the moment we're at about $24 or so. So we're about halfway to that goal in particular. So, you know, if you were kind of looking for an idea of like what we're paying every month in particular for hosting costs, there's your number right there. If you've ever been interested in supporting us on Patreon, again, that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks and you want to help us uh, pay for our hosting, you know, supporting us on Patreon is the best way for you guys to do that. Uh, We could really use just a little more help to kind of pay for that stuff in particular. And, you know, just in general, we we really appreciate any uh, any patronage that our patrons have given us, you know, not just over the past year, but since we started up our Patreon a few years ago at this point. Uh, really any amount you give us helps. Uh, you know, if you only have a dollar to give us, for instance, uh, we actually also just uploaded a huge Shonen Jump retrospective. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it is basically our annual tradition at this point to get together with our good friend Maxi from Friendship Ever Victory to talk about the past year of Shonen Jump and everything that we're reading. And we basically recorded our longest Shonen Jump retrospective at about uh, three and a half hours worth of raw audio. It was a little longer than that before I got to editing it. Uh, we might have to change the format a, a little bit on that, maybe in the coming years. We're still kind of working on that. Uh, but for now, you know, if you want to sign up for a Patreon and you only have so much to give, don't worry, because if you sign up for just the dollar, you'll get access to that Shonen Jump retrospective in the past two we recorded. That's... I don't even know how many hours of podcasts in particular. I, that should be like over six hours of audio you can listen to for just a dollar. And yeah, I mean, again, anything you're able to gives us helps. And, you know, the, the Shonen Jump retrospectives, I like making a dollar in particular because, you know, I, I like to see the Shonen Jump retrospectives in particular as like a as like a big thank you for basically any existing patrons, especially who have been supporting us over the past year. You know, I figured, hey, if you're supporting us for that long, you should get a big old podcast out of it as, as our <laughs> gift to you. So we hope you uh, enjoy that and uh, listen to that. So, yeah. 
Indeed. It's a meaty one and a fun one, and definitely, hopefully, you guys will enjoy it. It's a nice special treat for your support. If you ever wanted to hear us talk at least 20 minutes about Witch Watch, uh, there's there's the podcast <laughs> for you. But yeah, once again, you can find all this and more over at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, we definitely have a lot of exciting bonus podcasts coming up uh, at the $5 tier in particular. And uh, we'll be sure to let you guys know when those come up, uh, you know, when we upload those and everything. But yeah, there's we have so much to offer on our, pa- offer on our Patreon uh, in thanks for your support. Uh, so many podcasts that we put up over the past couple years or so that uh, you'll have access to if you sign up. But, uh, you know, actually, I just thought of this. Um, do we want to talk about our survey stuff real quick, actually? Because that might be up by the time this episode's up. Indeed, because speaking of traditions, it is once again time for our annual tradition of doing a survey in which we poll our listeners about what they enjoyed most about our podcasts in the previous year. You can respond to the survey and let us know what your favorite Manga Mavericks episodes were in 2021, who your favorite guests were, and what you are looking forward to in 2022, who you'd like to see on the show in 2022, and just share your thoughts on the podcast in general. What you like about us, what you want to see us improve on. It is your time to share your feedback and your favorites about the show with us. And once again, as a special gift and treat to participants and listeners who take the survey we are doing another manga giveaway and once again five lucky survey takers will get to win a manga volume of their choosing from a collection of volumes provided by both Colton and myself. There are 35 individual manga volumes you can choose from, and about 30 issues of Shonen Jump, the classic monthly North American Shonen Jump by Viz, that you can pick from as well. Mm Mm-hmm. So, a lot of good pickings for you if you're a manga collector enthusiast who finds in our list some titles they want to fill their shelf with. This will be a great treat for you if you take the survey and you happen to win a giveaway. And five people will be lucky winners who will win. So, you know, definitely, uh, we really appreciate your guys' responses and we happy to reward our listeners for you know letting us know because you know your guys's feedback and your input it really means a lot and we always enjoy seeing what folks enjoyed most about the show and their thoughts and their input and that really does affect and inform how we approach the show and how we steer it uh in improve it so definitely we really appreciate your feedback and once Mm -hmm. again when the survey is completed we will do a podcast covering the results this year however it won't be a public podcast it will be a podcast for patreon listeners just because we want to free up some space on our schedule however the results of the survey in terms of favorite episodes and guests and stuff and 
uh, select feedback we receive, we will post those results when the survey is finished on our Twitter. So you will get to see like the results of like what uh, ended up being the most popular episodes and guests and like the most uh, requested feedback and stuff. And yeah, so the survey will run up until Sunday, February 6th. So you have plenty of time to participate in the survey. And yeah, we're looking, looking forward to seeing uh, what your guys' favorites were and what you guys is looking forward to in the upcoming year. So yeah, I always enjoy survey time and seeing how these results end up. So, yeah, looking forward to this year's as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely please take the survey. We would love to hear your feedback on the podcast in general. And uh, we'll definitely be leaving a link to that in the show notes for this episode, as well as subsequent episodes to come after this until the deadline of the survey. So, like Lum said, you have plenty of time to take it. But uh, just know that when you do take it, we appreciate any feedback you leave us. And yeah, uh, hopefully you'll get to win some manga. Uh, like Lum said, I'm I'm also contributing in the giveaway this year. I, I had some manga that I thought it was time to give away. And uh, I don't want to say too much about some of the stuff I have on my end. Other than I do have an extra copy of the issue of uh, Viz is Shonen Jump with the One Piece Dragon Ball crossover in it, Cross Epic. So... If you want a chance to win that, you have to take the survey. It's probably the coolest thing that I'm probably giving away, actually, out of everything I've, uh, I'm contributing to the giveaway. Just, just want to put that out there to maybe kind of sweeten the deal a little bit if you want to take the survey. Yeah, there's an incentive, if any. And I have an extra of that issue as well, so you know. <gasps> Ooh, two chances. It could be, yeah, there could be two lucky winners who receive that issue. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that I, I would definitely take the survey for that if I didn't already have my own copy. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, thank you in advance for anyone who takes the survey. Uh, again, link in the show notes if you want to take it. Uh, but for now, I think it is time to get on to all the pups we have to talk about. And uh, I think the first thing we're going to start off with is uh, our one title from Sozo Comics on Azuki with Fadeaway Bunny. Uh, Lum, if you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about what that's about. Yeah, to give some context, this Simulpub has been running since earlier in May through Sozo Comics. However, we decided now that it's on Oski alongside the other Sozo Comics Simulpubs, it'd be worth talking about it since this is one we had missed before earlier in the year. This comes to us by Shiori Kiwana, who also has done a series called Eggwin and Friends, also available through Sozo Comics on Oski, and it's a similar vein type of story. The artist, uh, she takes like these very cutesy kind of mascot animal characters and draws some very kind of depressing stories of ennui with them. You know, the cuteness kind of belies the fact that the stories and the sense of humor is very dark. The protagonist of Fade Away Bunny is basically a suicidal bunny girl who's like suffering from, you know, depression, uh, poor mental health, anxiety issues, insomnia. And it's basically a series of four panel comics that kind of showcase different situations of her grappling with her mental love and grappling with all these different kind of issues she's facing in her life. And it has kind of like a wry, again, self-depreciating dark sense of humor. Ultimately, kind of trying to find the humor in kind of, you know, these very dark thoughts, these very dark feelings of, you know, self-harm and self-hate 
and also kind of resentment and feelings of alienation with the world surrounding you. The cast of characters is filled out with her supportive boyfriend, also a bunny called Kutan, who tries to help her out, but oftentimes, you know, his attempts to help her end up backfiring. Like he tries to get rid of her box cutter in one chapter, but then she just goes to buy another one. She also has a best friend called Mami-chan who's very obsessed with getting plastic surgery. She has a plastic surgery addiction. So even though she has kind of a chipper personality on the surface, she also may have some self-image issues. So she kind of ends up doing repeat plastic surgeries even though she can't afford them and keeps going deeper in debt. Sutan is also very obsessed with online personality influencer Himitan, who, you know, is very bright and, like, tries to promote, like, kind of happy lifestyle living. And Sutan is, like, obsessed with her and, like, often buys her merchant stuff. But also she kind of laments that oftentimes the activities that Himitan, like, says, hey, this is what a healthy, happy lifestyle is. She says, well, I can't do any of that. Like, there's one comic where Himitan is, like, going about, oh, here's my morning routine. I get up early. I have a cup of uh, hot water while watching the sunrise then i have a breakfast of fruits and sudan's like well i hate getting up early and i like sweet things for breakfast so i guess fuck me then <laughs> and then in sudan's bedroom she's haunted by gloom and dune which are just apparitions manifestations of her depression and then she's also constantly in interaction with a personification of debt that is ineffectual and actually like killing her but she often exploits and manipulates him for her own kind of means like she'll sometimes steal his sight to commit self-harm so this series is again like a series of four metal comics just kind of focused on the concept and the premise of someone who's suffering from depression suicidal ideation self-hate and kind of again riley and and tries to find the humor in that darkness and I think the way you'll appreciate the series most is probably going to be how much you relate to the feelings of Zutan or can relate to her thoughts and understand them. So the closer you are to those experiences, the probably the more you'll get on, the more you'll see the humor. And I'm okay, yeah, this is kind of a mood. Like this is, goes to a darker extreme, but you can find the horror in like having like these kind of cutesy characters you know, kind of goes through like these different situations and then say, well, this is often kind of the the humor in like depression, the humor in insomnia, the humor in like having these feelings and these urges. And so oftentimes like it can be funny, but more than that, it's often like kind of a mood comic, I would say. Sometimes a comic is just meant to describe a mood, and oftentimes there really isn't a gag to it. Like, it's just like a indication of a feeling. Like, one particularly striking visual of early comic was when she was like, thinking about overdosing on her medications and we just see her drowning in medications. The medications just like overtake the end of the panels. And then there's just one panel where it's just like Sutan on the top of the building. It's just like one long vertical panel where she's on top of a building and we see down in like this great perspective shot of like just, you know, people at the bottom. It's like, like, don't jump, like, don't do this. So there's often like just kind of sometimes there are just images that are meant to like emoke a mood and reflect like a certain feeling uh, of depression. So I can appreciate that quite a lot because of my own experiences. And so I found like quite a lot to enjoy, but I, I didn't appreciate in it. 
But I will have to warn you again that because of the content matter, that some serious content warnings for self-harm, for suicidal ideation. Like if you, if these things can be like, you know, something that will upset you. Uh, I think that this is a comic that may not be for you. But if this is something that you can sort of find like some comfort or can find some appreciation and oh, well, I can understand that feeling. Like this goes to a dark place, but I can understand that darkness. I've lived in there. Uh, I I can understand how Sutan's. I can understand like what the author is trying to express to this character. I think that you know you can f- appreciate it, and I I like the aesthetic of how you know the faded out kind of images of the panels. Like it looks like uh, the opacity is like at fifty. Like it, it, the faded out aesthetic, like it lives up to its name of like the colors feel like washed out. Uh, in the lines and stuff. So I, I like that. I like that aesthetic touch. It kind of me- is meaning to reflect, I think, the sense that Sutan is, has one step in the other, but it's also like fading out of it. Like she has one step out into like her own darkness and into like kind of the idea and the desire of disappearing from the world as is often explored in the comic. So... Yeah, uh, it's only four chapters so far, about, you know, 30 comic strips per chapter. A lot of iterations on similar concepts and returning motifs and stuff. But I liked it and I could see myself checking in. It runs at about a bi-monthly schedule. So it'll probably update, you know, every now and again. And yeah, that's about how, what I have to say about it. How did you feel about this? Um, I didn't like it whatsoever. <laughs> um, You know, here's the thing. I... I don't know. I just didn't think it was that funny, honestly. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I guess the base level of what I knew about this going in at all, I just kind of assumed, like, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, here's a cute little bunny character who's going to say, like, outrageously dark things, and it's going to be juxtaposed with how cute they are or whatever. That's just kind of th- th- that's kind of what I expected going in. And I wasn't expecting much more than that. And on that level, I actually don't think it goes far enough. Because the thing is, like, I, I don't know, like, uh, I'm trying to find uh, the strip I took a screen cap of. I think I think the one time I thought, oh, that was kind of funny, was um, it was the strip where, like, they're at, like a, like, a pottery class or whatever you call it, and they make, like, a grave marker. And I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of cute, I guess. But, like, I don't know. I got to be honest, I dropped this pretty hard after the first chapter because it just really wasn't doing anything for me. I just... I just thought it was really boring, uh, and I, I felt bad because, like, you know, I, I wanted to try to read more of it, but, like, it just didn't really do anything for me, and I just didn't really enjoy reading it. And I don't, you know, if, if other people read this and got more out of it, I totally respect that. It just totally wasn't for me, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, this won't be for everyone, like I mentioned before, content warnings and also your relationship to these kind of uh, thoughts and feelings and experiences is going to affect how much you get out of it, I think. So for me, I could find a lot to empathize and relationship. I could see what, what the author is trying to s- describe through these situations. And so, like, again, I also didn't feel like a lot of sets were funny, but they were like, oh, that is a mood. That is like a feeling I appreciate and I think is expressed through, well through this art. I will say that the one recurring motif that I really appreciated was especially the insomnia chapters. 
the concept of like feeling like there's this gatekeeper that is preventing you from getting into the place where you want to sleep. And as soon as they, you are let in, you're immediately kicked out. And so you never get enough t- the time you want in that restful sleeping chamber, you know, the time you actually want to rest. Like the minute you get in, you're forced out. So I think it comes up with some clever personifications of like, you know, various mental health issues and ailments like that. But again, again, with the content of the series, you know, it's going to, again, depend on your relationship to uh, those feelings. So yeah, it's not for everyone. But if it does sound appealing to you or something that you might find some cathartic enjoyment in it through reading it, uh, you know, it is worth checking out. It's just on Hosky. And you can pretty quickly, I think, from the first couple strips, get a sense of whether this is something that you'll uh, appreciate or not. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the content itself didn't really, you know, bother me that much. Like I said, if anything, I actually don't think it goes far enough. I was expecting this to be, like, a little darker. And, I, I mean, just for me personally, I... I actually would have liked it if this was like just just a little bit darker and that I think it would have I think it would have kept me a little bit more on board if if we kind of amped that up a little bit. But that that's just me personally. I mean, she tries to commit suicide like there's several strips where like she has a knife in her head and she's walking around with just a knife in her head. She, there's a lot of strips about her cutting her wrists and hiding it with her scrunchies. So, I mean, again, content warnings for like some serious self-harm stuff, but like it, she lives in a very dark place. And sometimes it's kind of a very real uh, darkness. See, I I don't think I got to those. I, I only I only read okay. like the first chapter, unfortunately. And that that honestly, I for for me, I felt like the first chapter, I guess the first collection of strips, whatever you want to call it, that was that was kind of enough for me to be like, okay, I feel like I have a pretty good idea of like whether I want to keep reading this or not. And you know, just the general like four coma strips, especially when I'm reading like a bunch of them at a time, are kind of a hard sell for me anyway. I don't know. It's the four four coma type manga and just gag manga in general. You know, I think we've proven on this podcast multiple times are not really meant to be binged or read too much in one sitting, you know, so maybe that has something to do with it, too. Um, but I mean, you know, if, if you're just looking for I mean, just just in my opinion, you know, if, if you're looking for something to just kind of waste your time a bit to kind of like uh, to, just, just something to read on Azuki while you're doing something else, you know. Maybe if you're maybe if you're waiting at the doctor's office or something, and you just want something to read, you know, this is good for that, I guess. But I mean, you put it best earlier, like this is kind of a oh, that's a mood comic, you know, like it's mm-hmm. th- th- this is something I think I would probably enjoy more if I found like random strips of this posted online on like Twitter or Facebook or something. And I just happen to scroll by it or something like this. This isn't really the kind of thing for me personally, I would go out of my way to like, read a bunch of in one sitting, I don't personally think it's good for that. But again, that's, that's just me personally. Yeah, it does certainly seem geared for social media shares. Well, for sure. Yeah. Well, that does it for discussion of Fade Away Bunny, and perhaps in the future there'll be more sociocomic simulbugs that'll start up uh, that we can talk about through OSCE or through other platforms. For now, we'll talk about Yen Press's new simulpub, Sugar Apple Fairy Tale. This is a new adaptation of this light novel series that is being done by Yo Zorano Udon. The original story is by Miriam Rikawa and character designs by Aki. This basically takes place in a fantasy kingdom where a big thing is that there are like these 
super like candy crafters like they can take like from these apples like some silver sugar and this sugar has like very uh, healing properties it has like magical properties so those who like eat confections made out of this you know like can have good fortune come to them and so it's a very important part of rituals and ceremonies in the kingdom and the protagonist of the series is the daughter of someone who was like, you know, a sugar master. You know, she was a really great candy crafter, very famous at her craft. And she wants to live up to her legacy and be just like her. And so there's this big candy fair that's going to be happening in the fall. And she wants to enter the fair and become a sugar master on her own. But she needs to get ingredients for the fair. But to do that, she needs to travel like quite a distance to a different place. And it's kind of a dangerous journey to get there. So she needs protection. And in this world, and this is kind of the dark part of this world, is that there are fairies in this world and they've basically been enslaved by humans and one of their wings is taken away to basically hold them hostage and their wings are basically kind of like their hearts so if they're like crushed by someone like that causes them like physical pain so that's how they like keep the fairies enslaved and the protagonist Anne, she doesn't like the system of slavery she sympathized with the elves and her mother you know had read her stories of like the kingdom's past and history of how elves like used to be or fairies rather used to be the dominant force in the kingdom like they used to rule over everything but then humans kind of usurped them and enslaved them but fairies used to be benevolent and they were the original like candy crafters who found the powers of the silver sugar and stuff so you know she sympathized with them and she doesn't like the system but she really doesn't have any other choice but to buy into it for protection so she gets a warrior fairy and like she promises to free him after they complete their journey and that's basically the starting point of the premise and of course the warrior friendly guy shall you know, he kind of is aloof. He kind of is distant. And he doesn't, of course, really want to do this. Like, the first chance he gets, he tries to steal back his wing. And, like, Anne sympathizes with how he feels. But, like, she kind of needs his help. So she says, like, I'm going to free you. I'll give you back your wing, like, after we complete our journey. But until then, you know, I need you to work for me. You know? So that's basically the story. And, uh, Yeah. It's quite dark, uh, darker than I even expected in terms of like fairies being enslaved in this universe. I appreciate the protagonist realizes that this is a horrible thing and like, you know, only is buying into it as a temporary measure. It's still, of course, a little bit of discomfort that it is a, you know, the central relationship of the series is like based on like someone holding power over another person, like holding another person as like their slave, even if like, you know, the dynamic between them is kind of like Fusiel, like stoic and then Sundre kind of type of relationship. But I am curious to see where it'll go. Uh, I think that there's more details to Anne's background, more details about the lore of the world and fairies' place in the world and then how they were displaced by humans that has potential. And I would hope to see that eventually the story would go to a place in which, like, fairies are freed from enslavement. And so maybe that could be the ultimate, like, destination in the series, or at least I would hope that. 
So it is one I definitely would keep an eye on based on the first two chapters. I'm like wary of like where it could go, but hopefully it'll go to a good place. I think that Anne is a likable protagonist because she does, of course, stand up against injustice and she is fully aware of like, you know, kind of the cruel situation she is in of like having so like she understands why Shao is like so distrustful of her and she under and she like understands like it is a cruel thing to like keep basically his heart on her and have that as like her means of like controlling him. So I think there's a potential for interesting character arc dynamic stuff there. And yeah, that's basically my thoughts on it. But yeah, what about you? Yeah, um no I agree. I'm going to give the series a benefit of the doubt and say that I think it will eventually try and, uh, you know, do more uh, with this dynamic in terms of like exploring the, the the moral, ethical nature, whatever you want to call it, of and having Shal as like a slave or whatever. Like I, I, th- I think because she's aware of the dynamics going on here and like how terrible she feels about it, I'm I want to say the series will probably explore that. I guess, dynamic a bit more and kind of break down, like, why it's terrible, obviously. I think we'll get more exploration into that kind of stuff probably later on. I, I could I could see that happening. I, I think I think that's pretty likely. I mean, in general, I, uh, I wasn't really sure how I was going to feel about this one because it, it didn't really seem like the kind of thing that I would really be super interested in personally. But uh, I don't know. Like, I, I think the art's pretty okay. I think the relationship between Anne and Shal is the kind of relationship that I could see a lot of readers really getting into. I think they have a pretty, like, fun dynamic with each other, uh, especially around the part where they're they're on the road and uh, bandits are about to attack them. And Anne tries to tell them, like, hey, you should, like, save me or whatever. And Shal's like, okay, well, basically tries to picks the worst time to, like, egg her on and, like, make fun of her, like, oh, well, you should you should order me because I'm your slave or whatever, like, just giving her all kinds of shit I thought was pretty good. He's very similar to Sebastian from Black Butler. Yeah, I could, I could see that, actually. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I was not expecting, like, how violent the series got. I mean, it's not, like, super violent, but it's a lot more violent than I thought this series was going to be. Yeah, the torture of the fairy child in the first chapter was very cruel uh, and intense. So, yeah, that that was very surprising to me. I specifically wasn't expecting um, Shao to just, like, slice apart all these bandits. I wasn't expecting to see, like, severed arms and stuff. Yeah, he does cut people in half. Yeah, a lot of the <laughs> dismemberment. And, yeah, it's pretty brutal. Like, we... Like, the action kind of cuts away. Like, we don't dwell in the action scenes too much. But, yeah, there's definitely a lot of, uh, you know, serious cruelty in this role. It doesn't really pull any punches on that. And I do like, like, Anne having to grapple with, like, oh, like, this is uh, the consequences of, like, my orders. Like, well, these people were, like, killed so horrifically. And, of course, you know, there isn't a whole lot of time spent after that. Like, her kind of dealing with that, oh, I basically ordered him to kill people. is because, like, immediately, you know, we get, like, the cutesy scene of, like, her childhood friend coming in. And so that kind of distracts from that. But I would like to see that further extrapolated upon, like, her sense of guilt. And, like, maybe she asks him to hold back next time so he does and go overboard in like murdering uh bandits or mur- just murdering anyone on her orders yeah for sure um i'm interested in what the relationship between her and her childhood friend uh, jonas is going to be like 
because we don't really get like a ton of that, but we're, we're kind of left on that note in chapter two where Anne says specifically that it's not love that he feels, but pity. And I'm kind of interested in seeing like what that's all about. I don't know if there's like anything more to that in particular, but um, my assumption is that she thinks he might feel pity over her because of whatever happened to her mother and the fact that has orphaned her. But I think she might be misunderstanding that, oh, he probably genuinely actually cares about her and is in love with her or whatever. That's what I can yeah. expect. Like the twist is going to be the misunderstanding is going to be. But yeah, I can see that also lead to some uh, interesting fraught drama. No, that makes sense, actually. I didn't think about it like that. Um, I mean, overall, I thought this was pretty okay. I think there's enough here to latch on to. And I don't know, like, I, I, I don't see myself keeping up with this, like, super frequently. But this is something I would not mind coming back to after a few more chapters kind of pile up, maybe. This is one where I will probably request the review copy from Yen Press when it comes out in the physical audience and keep up from there rather than following the simulpubs too closely. But yeah. it is one I'm interested in continuing to read. Yeah, I, I think I think this one's worth checking out. Yeah. Now, next, we got a new title on Crunchyroll. Believe it or not, Crunchyroll Ooh. has added a new titles to their manga section. Who'd have dunk it? And they've added uh, some backlog condensure titles, like Fire Force is now on Crunchyroll manga, and that time I got reincarnated as a slime. They aren't simulpubs, just a couple volumes. But yeah, they're adding new titles. But this is a new simulpub from them. It comes to us from Panda Ozawa and Yuigami, both having recently collaborated on the recent manga detachment uh, sorcerer stabber orphan and Yuyagami is also probably best known for the series Those Who Hunt Elves a very popular fantasy among series from the 90s or the thousands as well as Dokoida which was a kind of like a superhero gag comedy also from the 2000s so this is a new work for them and a new simul that'll be on Crunchyroll new chapters drop on the 20th every month and Basically, the premise of this is that it takes place in basically an analog to Japan, uh, a place called Yamato. And recently, you know, Buddhism has kind of spread throughout the country, coming from the mainland. Uh, basically, like this world's equivalent to China. And so Buddhism has become pretty popularized. A lot of people have adopted into it, including like kind of the main feudal lord. But that's kind of caused a rift in like people who kind of believe in traditional uh regional god worships so there's kind of been a war between the two factions of these two different lords and caught up in it is kind of a young prince called umayado who unlike the first really big uh battle he's a part of he ends up getting killed protecting his uncle prince hatsusebe and he gets you know an arrow and it's like kind of left to die in the battlefield however two gods have taken an interest in him and an interest in belief that he made you know, turned a tide of the battle in favor of the Buddhist faction. So he is kind of possessed by one of the gods, Ruru. Basically, they perform a ritual where Ruru is kind of like, uh, his soul is kind of transplanted into Umayyada's body, while Umayyada's soul is left to kind of uh, recuperate and regenerate in like his vassals, like a fox spirit and a tiger spirit. And then he's accompanied by his like fellow god friend Bakuni. And so basically they take, you know, uh, Umayyada back to his faction. And then like from there, it looks like he will take a proactive step in like leading the Buddhist faction to victory against the anti-Buddhist faction. 
So this one introduces a lot of characters up front and like a lot of uh, setup up front. I think there are ways to do that really well. Lucy Samurai did it really well in drawing upon like actual like a historical event and then recontextualizing and like really get letting us get to know the characters before like getting into like the big war conflicts and introducing us to different sexes factions. Here I felt I didn't quite connect to Umayado. I really get to know him before like the big battle in which he's killed and stuff. And so I'm not really sure like how I feel about, like, this overall thing that, like, he's going to be important in leading the Buddhist faction of Victory out. So, yeah, I just don't get too much of a sense of, like, all the characters involved in this. Like, we get, like, brief snippets of various different characters, like, personalities, but, like, nothing too deep. I think the main two gods are fun, Ruru and Bikuni. I think they have, like, kind of a fun back and forth between them and how they like sass each other or whatever. So I think they can be fun to read. And I think they're like, you know, cute animal vassals are like kind of cute. So I like that. But overall, I was struggling to get super into this one. I think the art can be very striking. Uh, and I think that, you know, it can be, you know, very, uh, interesting in like how certain things are laid out like it in- opens with an interesting hook of like Bikuni like <laughs> putting his swords through Ruro's chest is basically as part of this ritual to like reincarnate him in Omiyata's body and whatnot so there are interesting sequences like that that play upon spirituality in kind of a fascinating way that makes me curious about like kind of the mythology uh and the lore of that in the series but in terms of like the main conflict between the buddhist faction and the anti-buddhist faction that's where i'm kind of left to like i don't quite know the characters involved in this very well yet to super care about them so i'm mostly more interested in seeing like what we're in bikuni are gonna do but i don't know if that will sustain us if like we're going to need to really care about these other characters but there are interesting like things done with the art like i like the spread where you know Ruru in Umiyana's body is like like when Umiyana returns to his group like everyone is all at once like trying to ask him questions and stuff and like on the next spread he like answers all of them in succession they're like impressed they're like whoa how did you hear all that so I like that moment. I thought that was uh, good. And so I think that there are clever like story and art moments like that that have me interested. But yeah, this is one I'm going, I'll keep tabs on. But yeah, I just am not so sure if uh, I'm super into like the, the very basic story yet. Uh, and there's also another detail of, like there being like monsters that come out of night in this world. So I am interested in, again, more about like the, the mythology of the world, like the, the relationship between gods and demons and monsters in this world to like how that ties into the conflict over like religious beliefs and how Buddhism plays a part in, in that. But yeah, the basic core of the story, I don't know about quite yet. Mm. That's interesting, because uh, I think I'm pretty hooked on this so far. Uh, I wasn't really expecting this to be like a, like a historical fantasy fiction type thing, so uh, I'm pretty into that personally. I think the art's very good. I liked a lot of the spreads for this in particular, especially mm-hmm. in Chapter 1. I thought they were all uh, really super engaging, really compelling, really great looking. I thought they were all good, especially the one you were talking about earlier with all the monsters coming out at night or whatever. I thought that was a pretty... Uh, I thought that was a pretty good one. I can see what you mean about like n- not really being super invested in a lot of the characters yet, but I'm going to say I'm pretty confident that we'll I mean obviously uh we'll we'll probably become more invested in them as the story goes on. I'm hoping that 
this series will give ample time to at least most of its secondary cast. I, I also feel like with the god taking over Umayado's body, I understand what you're saying. Like we didn't really get a chance to like get to know him before he was taken over, but I, I can I I can I could see this series doing something where it's like, oh, maybe we get to know Prince Umayado, you know, through talking with all these other characters, and maybe they tell us like Basically, they tell us their backstory and their history with Prince Umayyada, and we, we kind of learn about him through there. I could see that maybe happening. Um, mm. Yeah, I'm curious if, like, if the story's going to follow, like, Ruru and Umayyada, like, leading the Buddhist sect to victory, or eventually Umayyada is going to, you know, take back over his body, and then they're just going to coach him along the, the journey. So I am curious what direction he'll go in, in regards to their relationship. Yeah, I guess I hadn't really considered that. I, I guess I, I can't really say for sure. I know, like, I guess how long he's going to be taking over his body. It could be the entirety of the series. We don't really know. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I felt like this was, like you said, a lot of setup. But I don't know. I, I, I think there's a lot going on here. And I think there's a lot we could dig into here, especially with how many, like, characters we have that we're probably going to end up focusing on throughout the different armies and everything. Um, I, th I think there's a lot uh, that you could do with this in particular. I'm, I might actually try to keep up with this one. I'm actually pretty interested in reading more of this eventually. Oh, yeah, it's definitely an interesting one. So I'm curious to follow and see where it'll go. And it's definitely a breath of fresh air to have a new simul pub added to Crunchyroll after so long. Like this, it really is a surprise, you know, like did make a posting of like oh hey we got this new thing but you know Crunchyroll being Crunchyroll they don't promote their manga section very well like <laughs> they didn't really promote the fact oh hey we got uh, some Fire Force now on here too and some deactivating really or something you know they, they could stand to do better to promote their manga section and I'm glad they are actually adding uh, new titles and this isn't available elsewhere as far as I know not that I could find anyway yeah so, yeah, it's a new exclusive for them, which is pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, I will give Crunchyroll credit. Uh, when I was reading both these chapters, I didn't have a lot of issues using their Crunchyroll manga app for once. So that's nice. Now, that's where I have to actually uh -oh. chime in and say I have had a problem. <laughs> because, oh, no. uh, you know, reading both chapters on the app, I can when I try to go back to read the first chapter again, it immediately jumps me forward to chapter two. And no matter how much I have tried, I, it will not let me just go back to page one of chapter one. It immediately jumps me forward to chapter two. Okay, you know what? Actually, um, now that you bring it up, uh, while we were talking, I was I kept literally trying to open up chapter one so I could like take a look at the spreads that I mentioned earlier and talk about them. But I, I kept having the same problem just now, actually. It kept taking me to chapter two, no matter how many times I kept getting to chapter one. But, you know, I, I you know, I, I feel bad because it's like I really didn't have any problems reading them like a few days ago uh, while I was trying to catch up with the podcast. But, yeah, no, I, I, I see what you're saying because I, I just had the same problem while trying to open up the chapter on my end right now for reference. So that's that's kind of annoying, honestly. And this isn't happening with other series. Like I've, te I've been testing this out with other series and I'm not having this problem when I try to navigate back to a chapter that I've already finished. It doesn't jump me forward all of a sudden. So I don't know why it's happening just with this series. I don't know. Crunchyroll manga 
is weird and really likes to not work about 90% of the time people use it, or at least on my end anyway, um, which is why I, I was kind of dreading trying to use the app in order to read this. But I don't know uh, if I'll say it like this. I would like to read more of this and I would like to maybe actually try to keep up with it if I remember to. But if I have if I keep having issues on the app, it's probably going to turn me away from reading the rest of it, unfortunately. But we'll just have to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That does it for, I think, our discussion on uh, on reserving sales. So now we'll go into a new addition to Manga Plus. Even if you slip my mouth by Akari Kachimoto, this series basically plays with the mythos of the Kuchisake Ona, the split-out woman, which was, you know, if you've heard our Parasite discussion recently, you know, quite kind of a popular superstition urban legend kind of in the 80s, 70s. And, you know, it plays upon the idea that, you know, she had kind of her time in the sun, but like... Like, four decades later, you know, not a lot of people talk about her. People are kind of indifferent to the legend, not super scared of her. And because of that, you know, for monsters, supernatural creatures like her, she kind of lives off of the fear of humans, like the belief people have in her. So the fact that no one really talks about her, no one really is scared or believes in her anymore, she's kind of like on the verge of disappearing from the world. And so in order to kind of extend her life, she has to marry into like this family called the Sano family that for generations has kind of like managed superstitions and urban legends. And basically by marrying into the family, like she can keep existing, like she can like subsist on like their spiritual powers or whatever. And there's later complications of like that is real that, you know, previous generations of Sano family had kind of used monsters that had married into the family and taken their powers and exploited them. So that's kind of like interesting, like lore that may be explored uh, further on. But the central premise of this is mostly a rom com of like she's kind of engaged to this like 17 year old high schooler who like really loves her, you know, and she, you know, all she wants is to be able to continue to exist through her own power by just being able to scare other people. And the first thing that she wants to do is she wants to scare uh, Koichi. Like the guy he, she's betrothed to. And so many chapters are just her trying to figure out ways to scare him. But he's pretty unperturbed because he loves how she looks. She is really in love with her. So she's often taken aback by like how kind of uh, charming or gentle he is to her. And so that keeps her on edge and kind of catches her off guard oftentimes. And yeah, that's kind of the premise. And from there, yeah, we've again gotten some more background on like the Sonophone. We got some implications of like, you know, why Koichi is in love with Moroku. Like apparently like as a kid, Moroku ended up scaring away some bullies. And that was the first time she he laid eyes on her. And since then, he's kind of had, like, affections towards her. And there's also some other kind of background that there seems to be with Moroku and, like, kind of her previous, like, scariness or sadness, like, as observed by her... The person, the monster who claims to be her brother, Makoto, who also seems to be kind of like a, you know, split type person as well, though we haven't like quite gotten that yet. At least uh, I haven't read the most recent two chapters because they just came out today. I didn't get time. So if they have been addressed, uh, I haven't seen it. But there seems to be something more going on in both of their pasts. And there seems to be like more supernatural uh, creatures that continue to get added and get involved in their relationship. And also, Koichi has this fan club, and they are also like, you know, they have misunderstood that, oh, like, yeah, they are 
I, they think that Moroku is Koichi's sister, so there's a big misunderstanding there. So there's some rom-com hijinks and stuff uh, that are quite cute and fun. Overall, it's just a quite cute, charming series and often has some really striking art moments. Like, oh, yeah. there's a great color page spread used very well like in the middle of a chapter when they're reflecting upon like kind of Moroku's past when Makoto's reflecting on like how Moroku used to be like a moment where he saw her and she like was kind of like stunningly beautiful and how horrifying she was and that was a really good use of a color scratch and definitely was an arresting image of like yeah there's kind of beauty in kind of this terrifying massage of this person so yeah like uh, I, I find it very charming so far I've basically been following following the chapters ever since they came out the uh, past month and a half or so. And uh, yeah, I am curious to see where it goes. It's quite a charming little rom- supernatural rom-com. Yeah, um, I liked it too. I think it's very cute. I agree. I also really love the way that color is used in the series because this is another series on uh, Manga Plus and by extension originally, you know, Shonen Jump Plus where I guess the creator behind said series really uses color to their advantage, even though it's mostly a black and white comic and you know you mentioned that spread earlier of Mikoto uh, thinking back to that moment with his sister calling back to the beginning of the chapter and everything I thought that was really well done there's even a moment where in one chapter where Koichi is like you know trying to make candy for Miroku and Uda comes in and is like what is going on here because like there are literally red splotches all over the place which I, which <laughs> I thought was really really striking uh, and uh, so obviously he thinks it's blood and he thinks like a crime scene happened or something, but uh, he's just trying to make candy for, for Moroku because she likes sweet things and it's really cute. So I, I really love little details like that. I thought that was really well done. And yeah, I mean, just in general, I just think it's really cute. I think the funniest thing in this series so far is because um, at one point we randomly cut to this group of characters that we never met before. And you have um, this one guy, Inukawa, who keeps going on about how Koichi isn't, hasn't been like coming to school as much lately. And he's like freaking out at the possibility of him having a girlfriend. And it leads to, it leads to this really great punchline where it turns out there's a throwaway line where basically they mention like, oh, this guy even has a fan club. Can you believe it? And then it comes back at the end of the chapter when it turns out that Inukawa is the leader of the fan club. <laughs> I, I love that reveal so much. I didn't see that coming. That that made me laugh quite a lot. <laughs> I, I thought that was the funniest uh, punchline in the series so far. Yeah, that kind of synth character seems like he'll be a lot of fun. I I enjoy, I guess in this case, I enjoyed I enjoyed that character archetype more than I do the... I think this is the series that, well, and maybe I realized it beforehand, I don't know, but this is the series that reminds me, oh, I'm kind of tired of the clingy younger brother archetype. It it gets a little old after a while. Yeah, I don't, I think Makoto ended up treading a nice balance because he kind of got over his resentment and Kochi, you know, he understood, oh, yeah, Kochi does actually care about Moroku and Moroku, more importantly, is really happy around him. Like she, you know, is happy, like playing around with him, like when she draws the X's on his face and stuff. And it's like he sees her laugh and smile and it's like, oh, my sister is actually happy here. And then he's like, okay, you know, I'm backing down, like you win. And then, you know, Kochi's like, yeah, but you know, what my request of you now that I want is like, hey, just use the front door next time. Like you are Moroka's family, you know, you should get to see each other. You know, we should get to know each other and be pals and stuff like that. So I thought that was nice. And then of course, like he's going to stick around now for a long time because he's transferred into Koichi's class. So 
that was uh, also a funny thing. Oh, hey, like, uh, I wonder when we'll see each other again. And then it's like, oh, well, now it's like he's going to be around um, all pretty <laughs> frequently now because he's in the same yeah, class. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I like him better than... You know, I you know I don't dislike yours brother uh, in Spy Family, but I think I like uh, Mikoto a little more than that kind of archetype because at least he's kind of like gotten over like his possessiveness a little bit. You know, it's kind of like formed respect for Koichi, whereas uh, yours brother is like you know still like oh, I hate, <laughs> I hate this guy like he's so close to my sister yeah whereas with spy family we're gonna have to deal with that for probably a lot longer unfortunately yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. um but i just i just really like this series usually i don't know what it is like romantic comedies are like uh i'm kind of picky about because like uh some some work for me others don't i think this one works for me i think this is um I, I think this is a good rom-com with, like, a nice, like, macabre twist with Moroku being the Kuchisake Ona. I think that adds, uh, I think that adds a layer of, um, of, uh, of supernatural kind of spooky, yeah, element to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're great gags with the fact that she is, like, this one on, because, like, oftentimes, like, her mouth will get detached and, you know, they <laughs> her jaw just blur falls it off with mosaic. But, like, you know, there's one gag where, like, it's on her end. She's like, oh, where's my job? And, like, Koichi's singing, like, oh, it's like the glasses gag with, with her job. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Oh, uh, yeah. So there's there's some good comedy that comes out of that. But, uh, yeah, I think, um, I think this is good. And I, I think, I think I'll try to keep up with this one. Yeah. I've been enjoying keeping up with the last couple of weeks. And yeah, this is another, uh, charming addition to Manga Plus's great lineup of rom coms, I think. Now we're going to move on to our Shonen Jump simulpubs. We're starting off with something that isn't weekly Shonen Jump, but is being simulpubbed by Wiz All the Same, Shoha Shoten, which is a new series drawn by Takashi Abata and written by Akinari Azakura. And this series, I think, can be fairly, fairly described as Bakuman, but for comedy. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one that thought that, yeah. I mean, very superficially, character design-wise, you have kind of this kind of closeted, like, very talented person with black hair who meets, like, this very eccentric blonde-haired person who kind of sees the talented and pushes him to partner up with him so they can take over this world of this profession. So on the very... And also doing it for... To attract the attention of the girl that the, the black-haired kid likes. So yep. it's very superficially, <laughs> there are a lot of similarities. But it's uh, still a lot of fun. Basically, the premise is, you know, again, uh, the main protagonist, Azamichi, you know, he, like, many years ago, when he had to say goodbye to, like, a girl, like, he was, you know, very close to and very fond of, uh, she asked him, like, to tell her a joke that would make her laugh, and he couldn't think of anything, and so that always kind of bothered him, so he really studied comedy, and he entered into all these, like, kind of competitions, and did a bunch of call-in shows, and became known as, like, Everyday Shijimi, and so kind of always, like, uh, got a huge applauses and for his jokes. And so he's kind of been honing his comedy skills from there. And then eventually he's kind of figured out, uh, you know, as being part of school council and there's this comedy event being held at their school. Like, he attracts the attention of one of the participants, you know, a very eccentric kind of up-and-coming comedian called Tayo Higashikata. And so, like, he asks uh, him to partner up with him. 
And so they do the comedy competition together. And from there, like, uh, Azumi kind of gets the sense of, oh, like, you know, something that I, you know, I have huge stage fright. So this is why I never, you know, wanted to perform up in person. But like doing this performance, like with Tayo, like he is able to get into the groove and get, get over it. And then he's kind of getting more confidence, like, hey, maybe I can put myself out there. And by putting myself out there, like I can like figure out where Mizuha is and reach her that way. And so they kind of team up together to aim to enter the Warl and Koshian. And before they do that, though, they have to enter and test out their routines at, you know, various like regional or local competitions. So they're doing a high school comedy battle and they're meeting some prospective rivals there. They also had to win over Asimichi's parents who like believe he's going to study to get into a really good university and was very reluctant to let him go on the comedy dream uh, even after he succeeded in making them laugh. So like they had some challenges on their way and like now they're feeling oh like it's going to be really challenging to perform a bunch uh, in front of a crowd that doesn't know you and so like how do you appeal to them how do you like make a crowd that's like kind of on guard and not and reluctant to really hear you out like get into your routine like how do you make them laugh so yeah I mean it's kind of like Bakuman it goes into the mechanics of like what makes something work like what how like uh, this kind of career works and those steps to take to be really good at it and succeed at it. And, you know, this isn't written by Sugumi Oba. And you can tell that because it is not misogynistic at all. Not yet. Well, I mean, so <laughs> far it has actually genuinely likable female characters that are not bemoaned for having, like, interests or hobbies. Like, yeah. one of their biggest supporters is Azumichi's, like, fellow student council member Hanamori. He's, like, a super big comedy fan and also participates in, like, other comedy events, like, kind of helping running them and stuff. And, you know, she's, you know, written as a good person of support and, like, a good observer and judge of, like, what makes comedy work or not, like, what are the performance and then later, like, giving them advice during when they're entering the comedy high school comedy battle. And then, like, I think there's a really sweet story between Azumichi's mom and dad, which would not be uh, as sweet, I don't think, if Sagumi Oba had written it. Um, like, just the mere fact of, like, his mom being the breadwinner of the family career woman, you know, that's uh, very anti-Sagumi Oba, I think, so. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's very refreshing to see Oba's, uh, Obata's art being used for for <laughs> good after so long. After years of platinum end and just Oba wowing <laughs> and his worst impulses there. It's nice to see, like, like, Obata's art used more playfully for more comedy and to have kind of a Bakuman-type story without kind of some of its baggage or trappings. Like, it's no, off to sure. a really good start and off to a generally funny start. Like, it is, for a comedy like it is generally funny. Like, you can really get into the pace of their routines, even though it follows, like, very similar, like, Japanese manzo side humor that doesn't always translate. I think the... So, you know, Stephen Paul does an amazing job with the translation to make it work. And also, I just think in terms of scenarios, like, they do a j- job in the listening laughs. Like, I definitely agree. Like, the second chapter is my favorite so far because I think the family members, particularly the dad, had, like, great reactions and the timing of their <laughs> retorts to, like, you know, Azumichi <laughs> trying to make his case for great. It was just continuously, like, like shooting them down. He, he followed the rule of threes. Yeah. The pacing of, like, the 
<laughs> the uh, trying to make him <laughs> make the entire family laugh is really good because they're all on edge and not trying to not like buy into the routine but you know it, it's again i really like the strategy they come up with of like targeting like their specific niches of like what each family member would laugh at so like they get a laugh at them but like you know just honing in on a specific person and figuring out what they're going to laugh at. And it's great. Like they do a great job of selling each of those jokes a a lot and it it really pays off. So yeah, I am having a lot of fun with this one. No, I am too. Uh, I've actually, I've I've been really enjoying this. I'm definitely going to keep following this. Um, Another big difference between this and Bakuman is how uh, Shoha Shoten, because uh, both this and Bakuman kind of go through the same beat in where, like, the main character has to get, like, blessing from their parents in order to, like, pursue the career they want to. Because, you know, obviously with Bakuman, you have the pretty infamous moment where, like, where Mashiro's mother is totally against him becoming a mangaka because that's how his uncle died or whatever. And she's all like, oh, I'm going to talk to your father about this. And then, like, literally minutes later, she just comes in, like, totally defeated because, like... You know, no matter what series, as long as it's written by Oba, women just have, like, no say in anything whatsoever. Men have dreams that women won't understand. Like, eventually, like the mom is completely robbed of her agency and, like, telling, having any control over what Mashiro is going to do. Like, his dad is like, oh, you just don't understand. You got to let them live their dreams because they're men and they have to do manly things. You're a woman. You wouldn't understand. They generally (laughs) win over the approval of the entire family you know mom and dad like there's no difference like oh you know you just don't understand it you don't understand his romantic dream and in fact the dad is the reason the dad is like saying hey i don't want you to really do this because i know how hard it is to like you know pursue your dream and not really make it work and like struggle and try and try and just not have anything to show for it but that doesn't mean you can't be happy if even if you don't succeed a dream because even though he didn't succeed in his dream that's how he ended up meeting like uh, his wife uh, asimichi's mom and in the end like he ended up being happy like meeting her and then like forming a relationship with her and is super content of having given up that dream but like yeah you know he he, that's why he's like even though eventually like they do like let azumiji pursue his dream you know they are going to say like yeah if you don't end up having results like i'm not gonna like unilaterally like completely uh support you unless like you prove yourself by winning the high school comedy battle so I want you to, to to prove that you have the talent to make your dream come true because, you know, I don't want you to suffer like I did, but I also want you to keep an open mind that there are other opportunities for you uh, in which you can be happy and you can find success. So I like that message a lot. And, uh, you know, I like that message about like, hey, here is like a more healthy approach to like telling someone or encouraging along their dreams than like Bakuman's like, oh, no, this is like the a men's romantic ideal. Women should keep out of it and with their opinions of like pragmatic realism. No, you should just like men live their fights of fancy romantic fantasy. No, yeah, that that's done way better here. I really liked how that turned out in particular, especially with the detail of like, because, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting how like, I mean, again, I, I, I just enjoy that, like, uh, I really enjoy like how nuanced that part of the story is where it's like, you know, again, compared to Bakuman, like you said, this isn't just like, oh, you should just let men follow your dreams and like, don't don't ever listen to women ever, basically, because they're not men. They wouldn't understand, you know, like it's mm-hmm. it's a lot more nuanced than that. And I also I also like that Azumichi's dad is cut is 
you know, he, he's not just against it because he's like the strict parent that doesn't that doesn't want to let their child have any fun, have a fun job or fun career or whatever. Like he he legitimately doesn't want to see his son like go through the heartbreak of realizing like, oh, what if he doesn't have the talent and he doesn't want to be like his old shitty like high school college friends or whatever, where like they basically keep like egging him on to follow his dream, even though like they're just kind of saying that they don't like actually believe in him or whatever. So it just kind of comes off as empty. Like I, I, I do like that instead of doing that, he he gives him he basically gives him the chance to prove himself, and then they'll go from there. Basically, yeah. Like he, he's not he's not just gonna blindly tell his son to follow his dreams, you know, regardless of whether he actually has the talent to do it. He wants to actually put him to the test first, which I I think is the right approach personally. Yeah, it's a much more measured, responsible approach to like encouraging someone, and I appreciate that. It's much more mature than like. Again, uh, other messages of unilateral, unquestioning uh, support of a person, like no matter like whether that's good for them or not. You know, if this were written by Sugami Oba, you know, we would get the obligatory like, man, women don't understand comedy, right? Women just aren't funny. You know, we would get that at some point. <laughs> no, like Hanamori would be looked at, would be looked on and proven wrong for all of her advice, like at every turn or all of her observations about comedy. You would not have that role she does in the series if Sumuli Oba was writing it. I really, I really hate to keep beating a dead horse, but I really am glad this is not being written by Oba, mm-hmm. quite honestly. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I'm really excited to see, because at the time of recording, Chapter 4 hasn't come out yet, where they're about to premiere, like, their skit that they literally had, like, a few minutes to prepare for this, like, uh, for this new crowd that doesn't know them or whatever. I'm really interested in, like, what they're going to come up with. Yeah, it's good, like, edge on your seat, like, oh, yeah, what are they going to do typewriting, which I like, you know? Mm-hmm. It keeps you engaged, it keeps you intrigued, like, huh, how are they going to get out of this? And I like that the new rival characters in Drew Spreechark, like, kind of friendly rivals that are like, yeah. yeah, you know, hey, give it your best shot, but, you know, you have kind of, like, some realistic expectations like how well you're going to do. Like, you're not going to, like, succeeded like winning over the entire crowd on your first go you know we'll give you some advice or like how to give you the best chance of doing what to do like one of them like tells Tom or like hey you know um, adjust the matchup so like they go last so like you know they can observe and see like what the situation is and then they can figure out what they want to do from there and see how hard it is to win over the crowd from there but yeah like I like these spiritual guys as, like, friendly rivals for them. They have, like, kind of interesting dynamic and, like, an interesting relationship to them that aren't just like, oh, you think you can be so good at counting just uh, this? Oh, we're going to, like, tear you down and stuff. No, like, I li- again, I like these kind of, like, hey, you know, uh, we'll be supportive, but also be realistic. Or, like, hey, you know, you guys are going to put, like, this kind of ticking clock on yourself. Like, you do this, and you guys, you win this, and you're in, or you win this, or you're out, or you lose this, and you're not going to do well. You know, we'll give you your best chance, but you got to be realistic, you know, and we'll, so, yeah, I like that. I like that approach. Mm-hmm. In general, I think I can wholeheartedly recommend this. Uh, I definitely am going to keep up with this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been fun to read, and yeah, I'm really excited to see where it goes. And again, I'm glad to have Obata's great artistic chops being used for like a really nice, charming story after, uh, again, years of uh, dreariness, let's say. Yeah, after years of doing what's essentially a Death Note ripoff? I guess I can't really say that for sure until I read Platinum Man. It'd be more of a retread than a ripoff, considering the same author, but 
Yeah. That, that's fair, yeah. I guess I can't say that for sure until I actually read Platinum Men eventually, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Um, So I think it's time to get on to uh, the three newest series from Weekly Shonen Jump, uh, just to put out there real quick that uh, we did get a chance to talk about these first on our uh, on a recent Shonen Jump retrospective. Uh, if you have listened to that, just a warning that I mean, I'm, my, I'm probably going to end up repeating a lot of my same points from that podcast. So I'm sorry about that. But yeah, if, if you've already listened to our thoughts uh, on these next th- three series in particular, just know that we might repeat some of our thoughts here and there. But uh, why don't we start talking about Ayashimon? Yes, this is a new series from Yuji Kaku, the creator of Health Paradise, Jigoku Raku. And much like that series, he really goes on in some really fantastic monster designs in the Ayashimon creatures in this world, which are basically, you know, like a kind of mixture of yokai Akashi type creatures. But yeah, the premise basically follows kind of like this high school who's like really inspired by Shonen Monk. He wants to be like a real life Shonen protagonist. His name is Maro, and basically he was motivated to live up to this ideal of Shonen protagonist and train himself to become strong by practicing routines and training in manga, you know, by reading Shonen Jump as a kid and, like, imagining, like, he'll be able to grow up to beat, you know, the bad guy in his life, which was his father. And But after doing that, he kind of felt a sense of evidence because it didn't kind of give him the satisfaction he wanted. So ever since then, he's kind of been seeing, like, different ways to kind of live out that fantasy. But, you know, he's too strong to do any clubs. He's too strong to do any jobs. But as chance would happen, he ends up coming across uh, uh, Ashimon girl who's being like chased by a bunch of Ayashimon gangster Yakuza tugs and she happens to be like the daughter of like the former head of a big of like the biggest syndicate damn the syndicate and she basically kind of after seeing like his insane physical skill recruits him to be basically uh, her subordinate in her new crew that she's hoping like to you know take over the uh, Yashimon underworld you know from the ground up again so they go to you know Kabuki Shinjuku Kambujiko to take over the district together and Maru is excited by this because you know the Ayashima Yakuza are really strong so he's able to go all out and beat them up to his heart's content and have really good fights with them and so he's excited about the prospect of being able to get into a bunch of battles and live out his fantasy of like being a shonen protagonist whereas Arara is basically just using him to basically get what she wants which is basically revenge for like her father being, you know, murdered, usurped by the person who's taken over the Enemas Indicated. Yeah, wants to basically take over the underworld again by herself. So, yeah, that's basically the premise of the series. They have an ally in uh, kind of a former subordinate to her father, Hashihime, who's, you know, still her Arara's protector and looking out for her and is kind of, like, infiltrated and, like, keeping close class with the syndicate. So, you know, she basically asks, like, a spy dispatch liaison to try and give him information. Though in the recent show, she's almost found out, but that ultimately, you know, she's basically her inside person. And then they've recruited a few new people after beating up, like, a kind of minor league kind of group. So they got a new building for themselves. They got, like, uh, some new subordinates for themselves. But they've also run afoul of, like, kind of 
the watchdogs, kind of like a, a Yashimon police force that kind of keeps tabs of things. An old Aya grudges and conflicts between the different syndicates, the Amyo Borough, which are kind of like a neutral gray force, but they're suspicious of Harara and they've kind of let the head of the new Enma syndicate know that something is sus about her. And so now that he's kind of sicked a bunch of people out after Harara and Maruo. So that's kind of where we're at in the story right now. But yeah, like, I really loved Harold's Paradise and Yuji Kaku's art. Like, he doesn't, like, he still comes up with, like, really uh, horrifying imagery uh, and really cool, like, monster designs that are very disturbing and creepy, but also can be, like, pretty full silly. And his human character designs also can be creepy. I definitely think that the current leader then the syndicate, like, he definitely feels like a real, like, Hell's Paradise type character. Like, like, he's like the antagonist group in that series. Like, he reminds me of them. Like, uh, there's really great art moments in this, like, really great action scenes, really great moments of horror, you know, particularly in the latest chapter of, like, how kind of twisted and dangerous uh, the Enma Syndicate head is. Like, the scene where he's revealed, like, Oli Ayashimon, he's, like, kept alive, like, living torture, like, through, like, pieces of art. It's just, like, they're living a painful agony. Uh, it's very horrifying <laughs> concept and thought. So, yeah, this series plays with, like, really cool, like, a kind of a twisted darkness to it, but also, like, this kind of fun goofiness of, like, you know, Maro being kind of, like, this very simple-minded but earnest person and, like, just wanting to get into good fights and live out his fantasy of being a shonen protagonist. And there's also some interesting scheming going on with Arara and, like, how she is, like, using Maro, but she also has, like, kind of bigger ambitions and plans for, like, you know, taking over Shijuku. It's interesting stuff and uh, really fun stuff to read so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I've been liking this so far. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think so far for me, the most interesting aspect about this series is Maruo himself, you know, with him, you know, having this seemingly like silly goal of wanting to be a manga protagonist, just like his favorite Shonen Jump heroes, you know, uh, it's something that seems kind of silly on the outside, but like, actually, it's rooted in trauma and a deep kind of sadness because he looked to jump manga for inspiration because he was living in an abusive home where he's beaten up by his father every day and abused and so he dreamed to get strong in order to like fight back to be able to beat the bad guy in his life to beat the villain in his life his dad but when he did that and he saw his dad flying here it was like not a big triumphant moment it felt lame it didn't feel cathartic at all and he was like what was all that effort work for was this wasn't like the satisfaction that i want it wasn't fun like i had hoped so, and all the fights he had done up to this point were just regular people, so just didn't satisfy him. He never really felt like he had, like, a, a real sense of satisfaction in what he was going through. A real catharsis to, like, kind of work through, like, everything that he had gone through in terms of, like, kind of being able to release himself from this trauma and also live out his fantasies. So, yeah, I, I think it's kind of, like, good to have, like, the kind of emotional core as, like, kind of the hook to understanding the character and he's like kind of basically living out like his dreams and like having this cathartic moment so like all this effort all this pain and something he went through finally having like kind of a satisfying release in the presence of him actually being able to live out his fantasy of being a shonen hero Mm -hmm. you know actually it just hit me while we were talking about this and maybe you could speak to this better because i'm i'm sure unlike 
myself, I'm uh, you probably finished the series, but uh, you know, I, I think I think this series with Maro as the main character and like the struggles he goes through with him feeling, you know, sort of isolated because he's so strong that he can't fight normal people. And now he has to fight Ayashimon in order to like basically have any kind of challenge and feel anything. I feel like this is a better execution of what I thought, uh, I guess basically of the only thing I really liked about uh, Nehru Way of the Martial Artist in particular. Whereas I, I kind of feel like this is a better execution of that idea I brought up when we first talked about that series is the idea of, oh, uh, we have this main character who basically loves fighting and has this one goal, but because that's his only goal, he's isolated from all of his peers, basically. Yeah, I like this characterization execution better than Nero. Yeah, yeah. Because I did eventually warm up to Nero. And, like, the fact that he did find community of, like, like-minded folks when he attended uh, his school and stuff. But I, I I feel like the hook in the background is better fleshed out here. Because at least in Nero, like, it was... It's not like he didn't have any friends. Like, he had a friend. It's just... And he, he had a friend who was, like, sympathetic. Even if he was a martial artist, he, like, you know, hung around Nero and understood him and stuff. And, like could tell other people about him. And so, like, he wasn't, like, truly alone and isolated in the world. And, you know, we had parents. Nero, like, was living on his own, but he had parents out in the world. So he was, like, again, self-imposed kind of loneliness almost. Whereas, like, Mario is an orphan, essentially. I mean, we don't know what happened to his dad, but, like, his dad was abusive, so he's probably gotten away from that home or his dad's just gone. He doesn't really have anyone else in his life who, like, can relate with him or wants to get near him because a lot of people kind of, you know, reject him just because he's like overly strong. He's just so single-minded of like wanting to do and really feeling a need to do things where he can put his strength to use. So I could like latch on tomorrow much more quickly than I could with Nehru as character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like I said, he, he's he's the most interesting part of the series for me. I mean, just in general, I really like Ayashimon because it is this like combination yokai yakuza manga. I think that's a really like interesting like sort of fusion of two things that I think a lot of manga readers are into, you know. And I'm I'm really interested in seeing how the story kind of plays out. I I mean, maybe you'll disagree with me. I I feel like we're still kind of setting up for like. Uh, for a bigger story down the line. Like, I don't know if we've gotten to the fireworks factory yet, if that's the best way I could put it. Um, but I'm still enjoying it, though. I'm really interested in seeing where it goes. Like, I have a feeling that just due to the nature of Maruo as a character and what he's been through, I I think we're set for down the road some, uh, and I hate to use this word because people have uh, kind of ruined it, but I I think I think we're getting ready for a little deconstruction of his character, even more so down the line, if we haven't gotten it already. Yeah. More than that, I'm just impressed with, like, how quickly the series is starting to escalate itself, because already, you know, they've kind of taken over a minor syndicate and gained their building and subordinates, but they're also, like, introducing the new other factions that are, you know, vying for power. And the most bold choice of all is to just spend an entire chapter removed from Maro and Arara and just focus on, like, the main antagonist group and getting acclimated introduced to them, seeing what they're all about. And just six chapters in, just spending an entire chapter with them, with the villains, and then ending off with, like, okay, now they're sticking off all their subordinates on them. So it's like, that's, uh, things are really heating up really fast, so... I'm really uh, curious and keen to see where it's going to go because it's like, you know, again, it's moving and it's making some bold choices, I think. 
But yeah, I am enjoying this. I'm excited to see where it's going. I mean, it's safe to say that I'm going to be keeping up with this uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, next up, we should talk about Protect Me Shugamaru. Yeah, this is our newest comedy manga of the group. And this series is pretty straightforward. Basically, there's this girl, Sanagi. She comes from a wealthy family. And there has been a threat made in her life by a mysterious, like, criminal called Skull. And so, hired to protect her is basically a little kid who's her bodyguard, and that's Shugamaru. And Shugamaru comes from a line of uh, people who've been trained to guard the Ojo family. And, you know, he and Sanagi had met a long time before, uh, when they were even younger, and she had kind of protected him as a little kid, and so he has, like, kind of a fondness for her and wants to return the favor in kind. But, of course, Shugamaru is very overprotective. His efforts to uh, protect Sanagi actually often end up just hurting her or the people around her. And that annoys her a lot because what she really wants is just to fit in normally at her high school. But also she wants to be able to, you know, meet a guy to become her boyfriend. And like Shugamaru's efforts uh, consistently prevent her from like befriending other people or <laughs> much less like attracting attention of potential suitors. Because like, you know, because by being in proximity association with Shugamaru, like people think that, you know, oh, their weirdness is a comes in a pair and so you know to put it in all words oh no they think i'm cringe uh, but oftentimes shugamaru does have some decent instincts and is able to protect sanagi from would-be assassins and so he can be comedy but oftentimes like he goes overboard and that ends up with like serious property damage to school or serious damage to sanagi herself and so it's kind of like a love-hate relationship between them. Or like Sanagi can come to appreciate Shugamaro's efforts, but she's also extremely exacerbated and annoyed by the fact that she is com- she is often at the brunt of pain because of them. Both in terms of like you know getting physically assaulted by his contraptions or his efforts, or you know being kind of isolated or the subject of misunderstandings in the school. So they do meet, you know, some friends like Kofuku, like a girl they helped out in the, a chapter. She kind of becomes her friend. And then there's like kind of this like ladies man guy who's interested in Sanagi for a bit. But then it's like revealed that, oh, he's actually just interested in her for the sake of his idol, which is like a Japanese comedian, which is like a, a very Japanese pop culture joke. Because, like, you know, I don't think perfectly translated, but I did appreciate the certainty of it. And then there's, like, this big conspiracy where it's, like, they think it's one assassin's goal that is, like, sending people after them. But it may be, like, kind of a group of people because we have gotten glimpses of, like, a group of, like, four people who are, like, talking and scheming about their next attempts and efforts to take out Sanagi. So there's there's some conspiracy guff uh, going in the background. And yeah, the, the series is, you know, pretty new. It's just introducing its stable of recurring characters, I think, for the long run. But uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a fun little gag comedy so far with some good jokes and some good recurring jokes in particular. You know, I love the runners with the guy that keeps getting like frozen every time. Like the goofy looking guy that keeps getting frozen or like beat up or whatever and, every, and almost every time he appears. And of course, Slash Takisawa, who also like is like this 
<laughs> miniature robot with sight hands that looks completely useful, but actually ends up being incredibly useful, but also gets <laughs> destroyed after every appearance in every chapter. So, you know, fun gags and a fun setup with some interesting potential for uh, intrigue and like some more serious stuff if it would want to go in that route Mm -hmm. i definitely brought it up on our shonen jump retrospective but like this really feels like the kind of thing that like you know if for some reason people aren't digging it as like you know a gag manga it could easily veer into becoming like maybe not a super serious one but it could veer into like becoming a full-on battle manga to save itself if it wanted to yeah at least a battle comedy yeah Kind of like, Mori King morphed into that after a while, and other series have, like, as time has gone on. Yeah, but um, I think with the more we talked about this on a retrospective, I think the more I liked it. I think I'm pretty into this at this point. I, I think I'm going to keep going with this, because it is, there are, like, it, it can actually be pretty funny. Again, uh, sorry if I end up repeating myself a lot from the retrospective, but I do have to shout out my favorite gag with uh, the final obstacle in the second stage of Ninja Warrior, the wall lift. (laughs) Uh, I I really loved the way that gag was used. Again, following the rules of threes, used it three times in a row, and it actually got funnier with every time they used it. There are some good pop culture references in the series. I do appreciate that every chapter seems to have like a deep pull Yu-Gi-Oh reference, like mentioning very specific cards and like how like impressive or good they are. They even they even reference Kaiji at one point. Yeah, which I thought was pretty good. Um, and I think um Maxi brought up uh their favorite gag on the retrospective as well, where it was like uh, I think it was in the first chapter where uh, Shugamaru like electrocutes the entire school in like one big two page spread, and then literally there's another two page spread right after that where the electricity transfers from the school to Sanagi. <laughs> I th- that was those were really good uses of the like double page spreads. I actually thought that was a pretty good like uh that it was a good punchline. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, in general, uh, I I think I felt kind of lukewarm on it at first, but I think the more I read it, uh, I think the more the jokes kind of landed with me. Um, and I'm I'm actually kind of looking forward to this. I I would I would read more of this for now. Yeah, I think it's pretty cute and fun, and it does have some surprisingly effective like art moments and some heart to it for sure. Like in the chapter where. Uh, Sanagi's friend is like kind of jealous of her and like tries to poison her and then like Shukumaru kind of finds it out and she's like oh no I almost killed her and so she tries to commit suicide and you know there's the great gag we mentioned before of like you know shooting the train with the mirror's face on it but also it's it is a generally seed moment where he's like you know Sanagi comes to her and says hey you're my friend like I you were the one who inspired me like you didn't have to feel like you had like this uh, kind of you know infuriating complex to me like you inspired me to you know be better and do well and so i think that it can is capable of like having some generally sweet heart moments as well that i think if it can uh, pull off even more like that'll create that nice sweet spot of like funny and endearing that you know what makes a series uh in- really enjoyable to read kind of like robocop oh for sure and, yeah like well, some of the best uh comedy manga are mm-hmm um, I also said it on the retrospective, but uh, I mean, if Caleb is listening, he's doing a really great job with the translation for this series, because I think this series is going to really benefit from having him as a translator, because he he knows how to translate comedy. He, he's, he, he does a very good job at that kind of thing. Um, I, I think the thing 
one of the, like the little sort of like sight gags that made me kind of laugh the most was in that chapter where Sanagi runs into her childhood friend and they literally are they're hanging out at a cafe called Fancy Schmancy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I thought that was that that took me a second to realize I had to kind of like double back like wait what does that sign say <laughs> I I thought that was pretty good um and yeah I yeah it's just it's just funny stuff it's 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 a lot funnier than like I originally thought it was gonna be not that I guess not that I didn't think it was gonna be unfunny but like I said I I didn't have any like strong feelings on it at first but the again the more I read it the like the funnier I thought it was and I'm I'm looking forward to reading it every week. Um, but now I think we should talk about Doron Dororon. Yes, this comes to us from Gen Uska. And this is series is kind of like another kind of monster fighter type series. In this case, you know, the creatures at the center are Mononoke. The series follows a guy who wants to be, you know, a samurai, basically a guy who fights Mononoke and protects the public from them, who are dubbed the Izanagi Force specifically. But of course, wouldn't you happen to know, he happens to have no aptitude for it because he has no supernatural energy it's completely zero so yeah it's one of those premises where uh, the protagonist has no aptitude no magical power no real ability to do the thing he wants to do but he like so many others manages to find a workaround by you know finding uh, a different source of power externally and in this case the protagonist Dora he's still very physically capable he's still very physically strong and he ends up in you know trying to still help out in a Mononoke attack and he sees when he tries to help and when instance uh, where he's like rescuing a girl and she tells him hey my rescuer is still up there in trouble he sees that that said rescuer is a mononoke itself called kusanagi and he recognizes that oh kusanagi is like a genuinely helpful person who's like trying to do good and so he helps him fight back and then they team up and it turns out like dora can wield kusanagi like a weapon like a sword and so they like team up and they you know are able to beat Mononoke together and they eventually catch the attention of a member of the Zanagi Force who's like very skilled very high up called Ginchio and she kind of sniffs them out and recognizes what's going on and basically recruits them into the force and basically she does this because she sees the potential and their ability to help save people and she she wants to achieve a lot of results and takes for her own ambitions of career advancements up the corpse. Uh, basically, you know, a promise she has made to someone who is also in the corpse that she's like following after. We don't quite know what happened to them. But basically, she's basically taking them under the wing and training them. And yeah, like for Dora and Kusanaki, their goal is just to make the world a nice, better place by curbing all the, you know, uh, violent, malicious Mononoke and protecting people. And yeah. That's basically the essential premise of the story and the foundation from there. And oh, I think overall, I enjoy the characters. They're very straightforward, but they're very likable. Obviously, as you mentioned, for the premise is rooted in a lot of similar tropes and trends we've been seeing in kind of battle manga these last couple of years. And so it doesn't quite win points in terms of overall originality. And unfortunately, it also, you know, suffers from being an another installment in this genre of like supernatural battle manga that we have kind of plenty of. It is 
it's kind of unfortunate for it to debut in the same round as a, another one with a more unique cook in Ayashiman. However, I think it is executed very well uh, with some really great action moments. And, you know, Kusanagi is a very cute design, a very likable character, which does count for a lot. You do want your mascot character to be very likable. And he can accessorize Dora in really nice ways. I'm thinking in the form of headphones and a cap and stuff. So there's a lot of aesthetic appeal. There's a lot of appeal in the characters. I do really like Inchio as like a very unique kind of heroine type protagonist. It's someone who is like really competent, capable, also very focused on career events, and also very self-centered. Like when she like takes Kusanagi and Dora out for a training exercise in the woods to fight like uh, Willow and Mononoke. Like at the end of observing their skill uh, in that is to think to herself, wow, I am amazing. I recruited these guys on just great instinct. I have a great eye for this. Like I am so intuitive. I'm amazing. So I like that like, kind of sense of self-absorbed narcissism from her. That makes her really stand out in a, in a fun way, I think. Because she is also generally like capable and a good person in her own right so she's not like totally uh selfish but like just that little edge of personality like makes her stand out to me and i think the same is true for doran kutsunaki they just have like just a little edge to the personality or just a little variation and that makes them a lot of fun and pretty endearing so i'm enjoying this so far and i'm wishing the best for it and seeing you know kind of carve itself out in its own niche uh, but yeah, I think it's uh, it's off to a strong start. Yeah, I agree. Um, I also agree that it's not entirely very original, but I also agree that what it sets out to do, it does very well. I'm just glad that Oska's back and jump because, uh, you know, obviously I didn't read a lot of it because uh, Viz only brought out the first chapters back when they were still doing their jumpstart initiative. But I personally liked what I read of Golem Hearts, and I wish I actually could have read more, even if maybe from what I've heard anyway, the ending isn't like super satisfying. But one day I'll read the rest of Golem Hearts, but that's for another day. Um so I liked Golem Hearts enough to be like, oh, I'd, I'd read more from this from this author, and uh, I'm I'm glad they're getting another chance on another series. And um, you know, I do feel bad that this is being pitted against Ayashimon in particular. I want to try to be as optimistic optimistic as I can, but I can't help but see a situation where un- unless Ayashimon just happens to like not sell well at all. For some reason, I can't imagine if Shueisha had to pick one of the two to keep in the magazine, I have to imagine they're going to stick with Ayashimon because of Yukikaku. But I don't know. I'm I'm hoping it does well because I, you know, again, it's not original or anything, but um, I don't know. Weirdly, I think and, you know, not to say that I don't like Ayashimon, but I think I like Doron Dororon just a little bit more just because like with Ayashimon, I feel like it's a lot more dense and there's a lot more to kind of keep track of. It's playing with a lot of different concepts in particular, whereas I feel like Doron Dororon is a little more digestible for me in particular. And I'm I'm sure probably other people feel that way too, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I also I, I actually do like the characters of Doron Dororon more. Then in Ayashiman, like I think Mario is a very compelling character. I like yeah. Arara and Hashihime, but I actually find uh, myself more endeared to Kusanagi and Dora and Ginchio. So yeah, I, for sure. You know, I, I that's what's really keeping me around. I mean, I also of course Oska's art is generally really good. Like I do think the actions are really good. Uh, the monsters so far have been really good. So. 
you know, Ayashimon really succeeds, you know, in premise and, in, you know, kind of a unique spin, unique originality to its kind of take of like having like, a, you know, monsters as Yakuza and stuff like that. And in comparison, Doron Doron is like more straightforward in its approach. But, you know, again, like good execution counts for a lot. And I think it, it has really solid execution so far, but like genuinely uh, compelling is, you know, they may be simple, but they're generally compelling endearing characters. So I'm liking it a lot, and I, I do wish uh, the best for it, too. I, I do want to see both of these series succeed. Uh, it's going to be tough, I'm sure, but, you know, I'm hoping. I'm hoping Oska will have a hit, if not with this, uh, but with a future work. Because, you know, they're such a talented artist, and, uh, you know, Golden Hearts, like, at least art-wise, I remember really loving it. Uh, and like this, I think it's really strong. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping for good things from them. Mm, for sure. Um, one last quick thing I'll say about Doron Dororon is, um, I really love the detail in how, I mean, first off, the art is really great. I love details such as like when a Mononoke is sort of like exercised or taken out, you have all these like black swirly flames that kind of surround them as they like sort of explode or disappear or whatever. And I really love the way that like uh, the sound effects are used when they explode and how they use the like Doron, Dororon sound effects. Like I, you know, I, I don't know what it would sound like, like audibly. I'm just taking my guess in that it would just sound like a sound effect. It, like, imagine, like, if you're watching, like, Kamen Rider, and you, like, see, and you see, like, your titular Kamen Rider transform using their belt. I, I imagine this is the kind of sound effect you would hear. Like, this is the kind of chant you would hear from a Kamen Rider belt. Doron, doron, You know, as they uh, use their belt or whatever. That's that's kind of how I imagine it, but... Uh, I don't know, just just like little details like that, I think, really make the series that much more exciting for me personally. Mm-hmm. I agree. There are fun flourishes and touches like that that give a series a sense of personality that really, again, help make it stand out and help give it a sense of like uniqueness of its own, even if like the basic concepts of story beat are story beats, you know, that have, uh, you know, been kind of common trends in manga past. Like yeah. those little flourishes like give it a sense of uh, aesthetic uniqueness. A sense of identity and whatnot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, again, not super original, but still very I, th- I think it's still very enjoyable, and I, I'm definitely going to keep up with it for now, see how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. I think overall, I really enjoy this round of new jump starts. Mm-hmm, for sure. I like all the series, and yeah, I'm curious to follow them for power why they run. Like, uh, I'm pretty enthused about all these, which is good. Yeah, I thought they were all solid. Like, th- there's nothing here that I, like, dislike, which is good. Um, I feel like that's not something that happens very often. Um, at least not that I can remember anyway, but, uh, yeah, I, I hope these all succeed, but whether they will or not, we'll have to see. Um, but for now, uh, we only have just a few more titles left, and I think we're gonna move on to some Mangamo titles. Some Mangamo titles that we got, uh, that we got a sneak peek at from the good folks at Mangamo themselves. Yes, Mangamo sent us some titles pre-release. Basically, they sent us their slate of their four newest editions that they've been rolling out through these past few weeks and into January. Those series being The White Necromancer, Road to the Spirit King, Tokyo Dead Game, I Was Invited to the Other World Country as a Warrior, but refused and decided to start as a soldier, and Anazi-san's Crazy Ellipses Session. At the time of recording, White Necromancer and Tokyo Dead Game are out, by the time you're listening to this, I was invited to a worldly country should be out. And by January 5th, Nanazi-san's Crazy Love Session should be out. We got a lot of chapters uh, pre-released for us to read. And 
I read all the chapters ever sent to us. Uh, Colton read most of them. So what we're going to do, because on the app itself, they have not posted a ton of the chapters. Like, we got a chance to read more chapters than are currently up on the app for these titles. So what we're going to do is that we're going to basically give a brief synopsis and a brief uh, initial thoughts on these titles. And then we'll go more into spoiler thoughts after that. So, starting off with White Necromancer, this series comes to us by Hidefumi Azamaya, and this series is basically another kind of isekai reincarnation story of this very sickly guy, you know, he passed away uh, on his hospital bed when he was 15, you know, never really got a chance to really live out in the world, but he's reincarnated as a kind of like a very healthy kid, kind of taking on the wing of the his village's wise man in like a world that is very similar to like the game he used to play in his previous life uh discard and so he kind of starts to you know find some friends in this world in Gilly and Mia and then he also you know starts to learn magic under the wise man and he starts to like specialize in both dark magic and white magic and basically wants to kind of grow up and grow into being what he was when he played the game in his previous life, a necromancer. And the first couple chapters of the series basically, yeah, just follow him kind of learning some new skills and us learning more about the world. And I will say, like, just based on the initial chapters, it's kind of has a slow start and you're kind of trying to figure out, like, what Alex's character really is, like, what really makes him tick. Because, you know, we don't really get to see his previous life. We're told his previous life and we're kind of meant to intuit his personality. And he's just generally a kind of a kind, cheerful kid who's very interested in the world and learning more about it. Like, he's interested in a person who could be a potential, like, uh, someone who is also from another world, who is, like, a traveler in the world. And he's interested in learning more different types of magic and kind of leveling up his skill set on his path to becoming a necromancer. And so that's kind of where, where we start out with in the early chapters. And then we kind of, you know, through him, learn more about the world through his eyes. And I will say that in the chapters out now, we haven't gotten to the point where, like, we really get more of a sense of, like, what will drive him to the rest of the story. Because, again, the earliest chapters are more of, like, a prologue lot kind of thing but i will say that i do find like the world building interesting i did like how i did eventually appreciate the slow burn of learning more about kind of the world and like spending time with the characters as children and spending time with kind of getting introduced to different like concepts like there are elves in this world or different like creatures races in this world there's like some lore stuff going on some things going wrong in the kingdom in terms of like conspiracies involving the royal family and stuff like that. So I appreciate like uh, that kind of stuff that gets hinted at. So overall, I will say that at the core of the story, I think that what will, what works about it, or like what is an interesting idea about it, is that necromancy as a concept is like the idea of drawing power from the spirits of the dead, the souls of the dead. And that kind of goes really nicely hand in hand with the concept of reincarnation, the concept of like being born into a new life and getting new power in the act of death and rebirth. So thematically, I like the idea, I like kind of playing with that concept. I'm curious to see 
see how the series would explore that going forward. I will say that with Alex's character, we don't get quite a sense in the early chapters of like what his connection to necromancy is and why he was interested in it, other than the fact that he played it in the game when he in his previous life. But I think as the series goes on, we get more of a sense of like, okay, this is what will be his connection to necromancy and why it's so important for him to become a necromancer. So yeah, this is one where I think like it becomes more interesting as it goes on. And uh, I will also say that I, I think generally the art is pretty nice. I think the character designs are generally pretty cute and there's some decent action. Like the chapter that is most recent up on Ongmo right now is the fight with the Wolverns in chapter four. And I thought that actually had some really good uh, sequences and sense of peril in it. So yeah, overall I'll say this is one where I would recommend you sticking with it for a few chapters to the point where like I think the story really kind of, you know, sells its took a like kind of lays its cards of like what the driving force of the series will be which is about the eight chapter mark i would say but yeah it's a definitely like kind of a slower going at first but i did eventually come around to it yeah this was definitely a slow one uh full disclosure lum and i were talking in dms and i i, I think about like three or four chapters in i was wondering like oh man should i keep going with this but i think it was around the point where they were about to fight the wyvern in particular that i was like okay i'll, I'll at least like see how this goes and i think from there i was willing to like read the rest of what manga mo you know sent us and uh yeah i mean just generally i kind i kind of liked it um i couldn't help but think and you know i i am no expert in this sort of you know genre so please let me know how wrong i am but this really felt very um how do i put this it felt very by the numbers in terms of like isekai stuff like this didn't feel very like this felt like oh i i could imagine this is what like other isekai stories are like Again, I could be wrong, but it felt very like, okay, this is what I would expect from a story, you know, amongst the whole genre of stories that are basically, you know, inspired by RPGs and like stuff like Dragon Quest and whatnot. Like, this is what I would expect from this kind of thing, basically. Like, I think it's, I think it's done well. Like, I, I will say, like, the more I read, the more I thought, okay, like, yeah, maybe I would like. Maybe I would I would maybe like read more of this. Like this feels like the kind of thing where I would prefer to let chapters build up. I don't think I would really keep up with this week to week personally, but you know, that's just me. Um overall I, I thought this was fine. No real strong feelings on this title in particular. Just cutting in here real quick to uh, let you guys know that uh, spoilers are incoming. Didn't get a chance to say it during the show because Lum just kinda went right into it, but uh Yep, spoiler warning for the rest of our discussion of White Necromancer in particular. So, uh, there's your warning. Okay, I think that's fair. I would agree that the foundations of the world of, like, it's very a video gamey fantasy world is, like, very common and stock isekai world. But then they are starting to introduce some more stuff, and then this is where we can go to spoiler stuff, regarding Lily and kind of, like... Well, she is, like, trying to vie for this position in, like, the Elves Kingdom, and there's, like, some things going on there. There's things going on in terms of, like, political intrigue in the kingdom, and then, like, Alex's entire village is, like, massacred in, in the effort of, like, kind of suppress any of, like, and sparks a rebellion that the prince is trying to sow in terms of, like, getting power or, like, getting whatever power the wise man had that 
you know, he was keeping secret that the princess is interested in and, like, the enemy force, like, didn't want to fall into her hands. And then more interesting, I think that there's, like, more of a conspiracy aspect on it behind, like, you know, Mia being murdered and, like where things may go from there. Like, I am very actually suspicious of Gilly and his reactions uh, to the entire situation of, like, the village being slaughtered and then him, like, kind of, you know, picking up the pieces with Alec afterwards because, you know, when we see how Mio is killed, like, she's being, she gets shot in the heart with, like, an arrow and that's kind of Gilly's, like, weapon of choice and we have a panel, like, later on where he's kind of, like, staring at his bow and it kind of makes me suspicious, like, hmm, is Gilly sus? Is there something going on with Gilly? And it's like he has a very nonplussed reaction to the fact that, like, you know, his entire village and his family was slaughtered. And he, like, the what he says is like, oh, Alec, you know, I'm, I'm here and I can be so strong because I know I have you. But I don't know. I don't know. There might be some uh, foul play at part so that's something that has me intrigued and i think the strongest uh chapter i think was like kind of the chapter with anna the latest chapter, chapter nine in which she i think after uh me it's got like you know we we have this moment where it's like we get a sense of like oh Al, you know Alec can see like the souls of the dead uh sometimes she can see spirits sometimes and a spirit and i think you know we're led to be oh this is Mia's spirit it's like guides him up to inside you know Mia's house to like where Anna's been hiding in the closet cuz you know you know Mia like told her to hide in there and she was like protecting her and so they take her along a journey and she, you know, tr- start training her up because she wants to be strong to, like, go alongside them. And then, like, we see that she has, like, this big complex of being, like, scared about, like, being a banner left behind for not being strong enough or good enough. And I thought that was actually a really, like, kind of uh, affecting and, like, actually, you know, powerful moment of, like, oh, this girl is, like, going through, like, some really deep trauma and, like, fear of abandonment issues, like, after, like, her sister being killed uh, and, like, knowing that she was killed because, like, she wasn't strong enough to defend herself, like, her sister was protecting her because she couldn't protect herself and, like, feeling like, oh, I don't want to be abandoned and left behind because I'm not strong enough anymore. And, like, you know, Alec kind of recognizing that and comforting her. And so I thought that was, like, kind of a really generally strong emotional moment. And, like, it makes me interested to see, like, like how that, her character will uh, progress from here. So I thought that was a very strong moment. And in general, I thought like the moment where the wise man passed away and Anna, and like, you know, Gilly and Mia were comforting Alec, you know, when he was grieving was also a very strong moment. So I think it can pull off some very generally good uh, character things that I'm interested in the direction of the characters. I will say that, you know, because the series is going to, by the nature of its premise, you know, deal with, like, a value of life and then playing around with, like, the concept of debt and drawing power from debt, I want to know, I have a better understanding of, like, Alex's perspective on that and the perspective on, like taking life from others in the sense of like killing them because like you know he has an instant death spell that he kind of uses pretty liberally (laughs) and i'm just like and that was a moment that kind of gave me positive like so alec doesn't seem to mind that much it does he doesn't seem that moral qualms of like killing enemies clearly death of people close to him affects him but like he does he how much does he like value the lives of others and how much does 
how much is he like troubled by taking away other people's lives and that's something that i wish was like kind of explored more strongly or explored like kind of a more deeper sense of like a moral question or quandary that he had to grapple with obviously mm-hmm. you know if it was like a moment if it's was portrayed more in like the sense of a moment of inspiration of like okay i have no choice but to use this instant that thing like that could have sold that stronger but i that was the that was like one of the major things that i was like well does this like fit into like this overall kind of theme and this overall concept you're kind of outlined and the kind of what you're setting up for the direction of this character and his arc so i'm interested but i do think that there are kind of some a little bit of uh, road bumps in terms of like the efficacy of how it's communicating his messages and kind of portraying Alec as a character but there are things around his character and there are things that in the aftermath of like the big event of like his entire village being slaughtered and him having to go on a journey and this all conspiracy angle in the background that I'm interested in seeing unfold so I did overall uh, ultimately come around to it but I I'm like still keeping an eye out for hmm is this going to effectively explore the ideas it's setting up or you know is it just gonna kind of like uh fall to the wayside in terms and then kind of forget about them or like not really think about like these interesting angles to having through these characters and their con and like their internal conflicts that they could explore but then just kind of sweep under the rug so mm-hmm. no for sure um i do just want to say before we move on and you already mentioned it but uh i mean i know it wasn't supposed to be funny but i did <laughs> i did kind of laugh out loud you know with, with the whole because like you know th- this guy just comes in this knight comes in with like you know magic coated armor and it's like oh how is he gonna get around that just throw an instant death spell at him <laughs> I just I just love how easy it was to take him out. I kind of thought that was going to be more of a challenge. I really wasn't expecting how quickly that confrontation in particular was going to end. That that really got a good laugh out of me even though it it wasn't really meant to be funny, but I just I just thought it was kind of it was just kind of funny how like quickly that happened. I just that legitimately like really caught me off guard. I was not expecting that. Yeah. It's kind of absurd and <laughs> some breathness and I do hope that there are limitations on that and again that's that is a skill that you know it's not used as liberally as yeah. uh conflict resolve conflicts going forward i actually want to give the series the benefit of the doubt and say that like a, a lot of the killing that he does you know do during the massacre at his village defense. Yeah. well that and like i i want to believe it was more like a in the heat of the moment kind of thing where he wasn't really thinking yeah. about it and maybe it'll like catch up to him eventually but i guess we'll just have to see yeah i hope so but yeah this is one where i would say maybe wait until like the eight or nine chapters out well, basically the point that we read because i do think those first couple chapters are all a big, big, a big prologue yeah and i would read those in succession and then see if you want to follow the story from there because yeah it does it is a very slow burn until like get to where the real starting point of the character's journey is but yeah i think once you have read that for all that context i think you'll be able to judge like if you want to continue from there if this is when you'll be okay leaving behind mm-hmm, for sure man i'm very interested in how we're going to talk around this one in particular well this one tokyo debt game at the very least by the end of the first chapter kind of outlines what the premise is 
So I don't think it's uh, too hard to talk about it because this is, you know, as the title gives away, this is another one of those kind of deck game battle royale, Danganronpa type, you know, stories where you gather a bunch of people together, you trap them in a deck game, they all have to like compete against each other to be the last one left standing. In this case, basically the concept is the entire country of Japan is bought out by an e-celeb, a street called Cypher and he locks down Tokyo he basically invites a bunch of people to participate in something called a Tokyo game and he promises like the winner of the game is going to get one wish of theirs granted and you know he bought up all Japan so he can make the impossible possible so why not take the chance on it and our protagonist basically you know he seems to be pretty aloof in terms of like technology like uh kanani like he he doesn't know who cypher is when we bought japan and he doesn't know a lot of things about what's going on but he basically is kind of motivated to participate in this game because his sister is bedridden and she doesn't have very long to live. She is, you know, suffering from some nebulous, you know, sad <laughs> girl anime <laughs> disease. Where basically, you know, she'll die by the age of 20. Like the only treatment that might give her a fighting chance causing an insane amount of money. And so Konami's best chance is to participate in this debt game to basically get his miracle, his wish granted, and getting the funds to, like, save his sister. So that's what motivates him to participate in the debt game. And, yeah, I mean, what you know it, like, uh, the Tokyo game, it is a debt game. Like, uh, <laughs> and so, like, he ends up going into Shinjuku with a whole bunch of other guys, and <laughs> Cypher has, like, these Momotar droids, they're Momotaro androids, and they also have, like, flame chores and guns inside them. So, like, if people act out of line, they are murdered by them. If they, you know, try to run away, they're murdered by them. And basically, the first competition is that they have to basically run up the tower, and, like, they have to participate in this big race. And if they don't do it in the time limit, like, all the stragglers left in the city, you know, something bad will happen to them. And he's, you know, Cypher shows he means business by having a guy who's, like, just beating up another random bystander, like, get burned alive by the Motar droid. And so that convinces our, oh, crap, this guy means business, we're in a death game, and... If we lose, we're going to be forced to leave or worse things are going to happen to us. But, you know, Konami is stuck in this game and he needs to get the money to save his sister so he participates. And yeah, that's basically the premise. And I think that tells you basically what it kind of is. Because, you know, as again, this is a, another debt game type story. Another Danganronpa Battle Royale type story. So, you know, if you like those kind of stories, uh, this will have some... I think fun aesthetic kills uh, and conceptual things happen in it. I think, you know, in the first uh, five chapters, the chapters that we got to read, we basically got the entire city race. I think that gives us a bit of a sense of like what the, the kind of crazy events Cypher is going to put the characters through will be. And yeah, you can, I think you can accept some like kind of uh, crazy stuff happening, you know, with like some crazy like kills and like crazy like things that crazy that betrayals and all the, all the kind of stuff that you can expect from a death game type story, basically. Yeah, you can you can really expect a lot of uh, havoc being wrecked around Tokyo. 
you know, a lot of mayhem, destruction, and madness. So, you know, I would say, like, we really only have, like, in Konami so far, one really well-defined character. And, I like, he's a pretty simple character. You know, he's just, like, a genuinely good and trusting dude. Um, and there's not too much more to him. He's, like, his drive is that, you know, he's, he and his sister are, like, you know, that's all he has. Like, his parents passed away early and he promised to protect her. And, like, he feels this is all he all he can do to help her you know with her illness and stuff so yeah i mean this is basically again just something you're gonna it's not too complicated of characters and personalities right now it's really just something you'll follow just for kind of the the aesthetic of it i think and the kind of the the sheer premise of like oh here's some like crazy kills here's some crazy weird stuff happening i would say the art is pretty good and uh i think there are some good visual moments to it uh good moments of visual horror i think i i think i really just like cypher's design i think cypher is a fun concept as a character yeah uh, and I like his mask and look. So I think, like, as a, a fun antagonist force, like, he's fun to have around. If, like, they he has more, like, weird minions, like the Momotaro droids, uh, that'll also be, like, uh, you know, kind of fun little antagonist enemy things for the characters to, like, kind of combat against. But, yeah, again, I think that, really, this is just going to down, down to, like, if you like Dead King type stories, uh, I think you'll find something to enjoy with this. But if, you know, you feel like you've seen a lot of these or you aren't that interested in dead king type stories without that much more to it at least not so far then i don't think this would change your mind but i enjoyed the chapter for the chapters for what they were so far yeah i just want to say real quickly before we talk about any like specific spoilers past chapter one at all um you know i I, I think I think I liked it overall. Like we said, if you like death game stuff, this is basically more of that. I have to be honest, this was kind of a sticking point for me, and I'm sure this is just me, but like, I kind of can't get over how like, because uh, Amamiya in particular, our main character, he seems like a pretty like young guy. He's probably like in his early to mid 20s, I would assume, or at least like college age, probably. Like, I find it kind of weird. I know he's supposed to be like, kind of aloof and even kind of idiotic at points. But, like, I kind of can't get over that he doesn't know what, like, remote learning is, especially yeah. especially when this is being written, like, post-pandemic, where that kind of thing is just normal now. I don't know. I feel like that's, I feel like that's too stupid. In this world, it's like, you know, the pandemic presumably has not happened. I guess, so, but it's still, I don't know. I mean, no one's wearing masks. No one's talking about COVID <laughs> in this world, you know. I guess, I'm but going it's still, to assume that in his efforts to have to, you know, take care of his sister, he perhaps has just not been to school and has just been working jobs and whatnot. Probably. Like, the beginning of the chapter is, like, people talking about, oh, man, this kid has been working really hard to take care of his sister. Oh, this poor kid, you know. So, yeah, I would say that. Then that might explain a little bit why he might be so aloof. But I feel like the, uh, you know, the big, the cipher thing is the biggest sticking point of like, how do you not know someone bought your entire country? <laughs> how, how do you not know who this guy is if he's like the biggest deal? Like, probably not just in Japan, but the, internationally, the news of like an individual person buying an entire country. So it's like, yeah. He seems a little too naive and a little too, like, not <laughs> in touch with what's going on in the world to super buy that he buy. Like, he's just too naive for his own good. 
I think one of my notes I have written down here is I'm really hoping that Amamiya learns to be less stupid. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, again, just very naive and very trusting and maybe good hearted to a fault as is explored in later chapters. But mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see. We'll see if there are more edges uh, to him or, or he'll grow a little bit as time goes on. Yeah, especially with what he goes through in the rest of the chapters, which uh, spoilers, if you don't want to be spoiled, just move on to the next thing. Um, but okay, yeah, I was not expecting... I was not expecting like the like uh, how this first game ended. I literally wasn't expecting like what all of Shinjuku to be exploded. That was kind of wild, honestly. It was it's pretty cool, honestly, the visual <laughs> of like all the Momotar droids going to a giant peach and then exploding inside the beach and then Shinjuku just all being destroyed. And that's Cypher's way of like getting rid of all the stragglers who didn't you know, finish the race. So, yeah, that was a cool, wild stunt. So, again, like, that came out, so it's all about, like, the crazy, big stunts. So, if it comes up with more interesting concepts like that, I think it can be a fun read. I think that the race itself was fine. It, it, it really was okay. is just about getting away from the Mortar droids and what the crazy things they can do. And so, that part was fun. The stuff with, you know, Sakai is like, whatever. You could obviously <laughs> could tell yeah. Sakai was going to betray him, like, pretty immediately. Like, he was just immediately sus. And, like, yeah, the yeah. moment where he does betray him is like, Okay, well, I don't, you know, it doesn't feel like a big shocking thing because we haven't known you that long and you didn't really seem like that trustworthy. So, yeah, you know, I don't, I'm not super surprised or shocked. and I don't really feel super bad for you when you get what's coming to you either. No, not at all. So, I do think his grin is pretty creepy. The reveal grin. So that was a good art moment, at least. But, yeah, overall, like, that wasn't the most interesting bit of drama. It seems that, you know, at the end of the race, you know, he... Konami has met potential allies that might stick around, you know, people who reached out to him to help him, like, you know, get up to the top. So hopefully, uh, you know, we'll get some more interesting characters to work off of Konami going forward, you know, that we can get invested in that can, like, add some interesting dynamics to this story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just in general, I don't think I would read this week to week either. The, like, I read through these first five chapters really, really quickly. And I, I read pretty slow, too. Like, I think it took me less than, like, 40 minutes to read through all five chapters. Like, every chapter goes by really quickly. Yeah, it's a fast read. I think that's one of its stronger points, is that it's not too text-heavy. It does let, like, kind of a lot of art speak for itself. Like, in the big climax at the end of Chapter 5 with Tokyo exploding, it's just, like, a a lot of just pages of just watching the explosion. So I think you can read and appreciate this pretty quickly. It's not going to be too big a time test. And in, in that sense, it also might be one that is probably better to let chapters build up uh enjoy them in like spurts like to read at the very least each step of the game you know each challenge one at a time in one go rather than like read them chapter by chapter uh, over a period of weeks or months or whatever yeah I, I i could see myself getting like arc fatigue from this depending on like how long each game goes if i have to read this week to week honestly but overall i thought this was fine like uh, I, I don't think I would read more of this, like, right away, but if, like, if if enough time passes and I kind of, like, suddenly remember it exists and I'm like, oh, a couple new chapters are out, I'm, I might as well read and see how that death game's going, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this isn't something I would, like, 
read uh, this is not something i'm like itching to read more of right away but you know i I might i might come back to it if i you know remember it one day you know yeah i think it's a solid execution of this type of premise but i will also admit i think it probably was the least interesting to me out of the four of the mangamo titles in terms of like potential characters to follow in terms of like you know, narrative hooks and themes and stuff like that. So, hmm. yeah. yeah, you know, as much as I'm not like an isekai person, it's just not usually my thing. I can't help but like agree. Uh, as much as I like death game stuff, I, I have to admit, like, and I'm not saying that Squid Game invented all death games because that would be a dumb thing to say. But it is one of those things where it's like, you can even tell in like the description for this on the Mangamo app that I think they picked this up because Squid Game is a big thing right now. And they want and they want like their own big like death game title to put on the Mangamo app for people who are looking more for more of that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, I think we'll see a more proliferation of those type of stories. And yeah, I mean, in terms of like, you know, concept like, hey, this is like trying to observe and watch like how a society breaks down, how people break down when put under the pressure of like a high stakes life or death situation. You know, yeah, like that's kind of the core appeal of Death King type stories. That's like the social comedy in Squid Game is what like ma- what makes it like really uh, fascinating, interesting. Yeah. So far, like this series sort of makes the pretense of that of like trying to see like how i guess japanese people might break down under the situation but i don't really feel like it has any specific commentary in an interesting way i think the characters that we see are pretty cartoonishly simple and straightforward so i don't think that it really has a ton to add to the conversation and using the premise of a dead game for social commentary so you know it's just really about the surface level thing so far it seems and so far i think that's it's it's executed well like i said and i there are aesthetic things i like about it a lot like again i I think cypher is a fun design and a fun concept for like the mastermind behind one of these type of things but yeah it's just it didn't it doesn't add like a lot new to the premise uh and iterates on on a way that i i feel like is doing something really different or like has something really to say so yeah yeah, no. Th- this is definitely like a popcorn comic. You, you just kind of read it to be entertained and not much else, which I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if you if you just want something fun and, you know, and you like death game type stuff, this this might be up your alley. Mm-hmm. So the next title we have to talk about and returning to kind of the genre of Isekai is I was invited to the otherworldly country as a warrior, but refused and decided to start as a soldier. And this series comes to us from Aneko Yusagi, who is the author of Rise and Shield Hero, which is infamous for a variety of reasons. But I will say that if you're trepidatious about the series just based on the author and that previous series, I will say that this is pretty far removed from a lot of those problematic aspects of that series. And so I think if there are like problems or like things you were worried about in that series that you didn't like, I think that you'll actually be uh, quite surprised that they're pretty removed. In fact, a lot of the series is actually quite wholesome and uh, charming in terms of relationships between the characters. Basically, the premise of the series is, is that an entire class is just suddenly transported to a 
another world, like a group of like 16 kids are like transported to another world because they need uh, in this kingdom, like they're, they're basically being invaded by a bunch of monsters. And so they need like very strong warriors to kind of get a leg up in the conflict. And so they need like kind of otherworldly like warriors that they'll like kind of train and they'll basically help them in their goal. But they're not going to like force them to participate. They say they'll give them the opportunity to like, okay, you can leave if you want. You can do what you own, own thing if you want. You can just hang in the castle if you want. But, uh, you know, if you really want to, but we could really use your help or whatnot. So a group of kids, though, including our protagonist, Yoshikazu, they basically kind of reject the offer of the king of like to you know, participate as warriors of the other world. And they kind of try and go off to make it as their own as like adventurers, but they can't join the adventurer guild because you need to be in the military for a few years in order to do that. And so a lot of those characters just end up returning to castle anyway, except for Yoshikazu and then kind of the chuny member of their class who is like super into light novels and is like super upset that <laughs> the world is like not conforming to like his fantasy ideal dreams. So he just goes off on his own and ends up seemingly being successful in his own way but he then doesn't end up being too much of a big factor in the story and the chapters we've read but if basically Yoshikazu you know he's kind of wondering what he'll do but he gets like attacked by a bunch of bandits and he you know is put in like a dangerous situation where he was almost killed but then he gets kind of rescued by like this wolf soldier and like he's really you know, he beats up all the bandits and scares them away, and uh, he looks out for him. And, like, he gets kind of inspired by being rescued by the soldier. And he starts thinking to himself, you know, you know, I now that I'm stuck in this other world, and, you know, I even though I want to go home, like, I'm kind of excited to be here, and I'm kind of a, ex- you know, I thought the soldier guy was cool. I would like to meet guys like him, I'd like to do Avengers like him. So that kind of convinces him to want to be a soldier. And so he decides to enlist in the king's military as well and that's basically kind of you know where the starting point in the story and there's like more like kind of uh layers of intrigue and conspiracy and more budding friendships are there but that's just the premise of the first chapter in that film there are more characters to get introduced i think generally if we had to compare both this and white necromancer i think i would read i would rather read more of this yeah i really like this one actually Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the characters are even stronger in this one, particularly like the central relationship between the main lead trio of characters. Yeah. That we have in Yoshikazu and like kind of his orc, piggish orc companion. Yeah, yeah. Bert. And yeah, he's, you know, he's Bert's cute. He can only say like kind of pig noises, boo boo, but like he's like a generally kind person who like rescues people even though like in this world like orcs are really looked down upon and people are very mistrusting him and like even when he tries to help like people like think he's trying to cause problems but like yeah Yoshikazu just looks out for him and helps him out and like they have like this just really nice friendship and understanding with each other and I like that it's a very nice development and then they kind of get joined by the female lead of the series as well who also has like a lot more stuff going on with her in terms of like like why she joined the military and like her uh, desire to be independent and stuff like that. So yeah, I think that they end up 
supporting each other in really nice and compelling ways. And then, yeah, like, I really like the relationship between them. And then, of course, like, there's all this stuff with, like, kind of the conspiracy in this world that kept the characters from the other world there. And there's kind of, like, these mystical forces that are, like, kind of getting involved with them. So, yeah, I think that uh, there's, like, a, a lot to, to find endearing about it so far. A lot to find interesting. So I would say, like, yeah, as far as, like, Isekai-type stories go, type, types of fantasy uh, stories go... This is uh, definitely a, a really solid, really good one. It has like some really likable characters and uh, plays with the concept of uh, the world, the concept of like having video game game mechanics in a fantasy world in a good way. What with them being uh, trapped in a dungeon, and that just being an arc of them like figuring out the best ways to survive and to level up in there in order to get out. And it, it ends with having some really fun concepts too, like how they eventually get out of the dungeon. And I guess. I are we done with like general spoilers or I mean general like thoughts on the series or Um I think so. I just wanted to say that I didn't get to read every chapter of this that we were sent. I think I read up to like chapter seven in particular. Um, but from what I read, I actually, I wasn't sure about it at first, because again, I'm not super into Isekai stuff. But the more I read of it, the more I liked it. And I think I, I I started liking this a lot sooner than I did White Necromancer in particular, if we had to compare the two. Once again, spoilers incoming for Otherworldly Country. You have been warned. Yeah, it's much less of a slow burn. Like, I think the first chapter is okay, but then the second chapter, we immediately get introduced to Bert. And then from there, you're like, oh, Bert's great. He's cute. Oh, yeah, he's like the best part of the series, yeah. We immediately, <laughs> immediately get, like, a good connection between him and Yoshikazu. So from there, when we establish that friendship, you know, the series just keeps going from there. And Like, you know, they have to deal with, like, this really awful, corrupt military commander they have to serve under. And so they have to deal with his bullshit and then they have to you know eventually he ends up getting them trapped in the dungeon and so they have to like work together to get their way out of that so like you know we get into it moves a lot faster and we get into really good compelling situations where the characters have to overcome different conflicts together through their camaraderie and through their ingenuity in uh really you know fun to read ways mm-hmm I mean, I guess if there are any, like, particularly spoiler spoilery things you want to talk about, now's the time. Well, basically how they get out of the dungeon, what eventually gets revealed is that, you know, this is like a, you know, sword sorcery fantasy world, but it also has technology. Like, computers exist in this world, like, laboratories exist in the world, and they can create, like, bio-animals. Like, they can create, like, uh, specifically, like, dragons, in this world, like there okay. are bi- there are different like types of like biologically like cloned and made dragons, and more than that, like these dragons can kind of be operated like mechas. Oh, okay, I'm definitely gonna keep reading this. So you kind of get like <laughs> a Evangelion t- a slash Pokemon kind of thing, where they basically end up, you know, after kind of finding this laboratory and like the level of the dungeon to get trapped in, like they eventually fight a dragon, but then they find like kind of a peaceful like dragon weapon that they can use. And they activate it and free it and it befriends them and then they can pilot it and they use that to like fight out the other monsters on the level and get out of there. And it's really cool. Like it's there like you can pilot like these like uh, living dragon creatures in this world. And it's like, you know, a, a Pokemon slash meets Evangelion type situations. It's like, I really like that. It's really cute. Uh, and 
Yeah, in terms of like, you know, there's more conspiracy stuff like uh, when Yoshikazu and their students are being transported in the world, there are a bunch of like ominous nebulous spirits that kind of are like talking about, oh, I'm going to take this guy, I'm going to take this guy. And so you get the sense that like the characters from, you know, Yoshikazu worlds are being possessed by these spirits. And there's this moment where like Yoshikazu, you know, after he's escaped from the dungeon, you know, during the dungeon itself, like he hears the voices of the spirit, like tempt and taunt him and give him advice on like how to fight back against like the monsters attacking him and stuff like that but then also like when he escapes from those and he meets back with like some of his friends from the his original world like there's a brief moment where we can see in their shadows like some sort of monster shapes and he there so there's like something going on where it seems like through the ritual that makes like a lot of the characters from the other world like into the other world warriors that also kind of tightens their kind of connection to like whatever spirits are possessing them and kind of making them possessed by them so there's that intrigue there and so there's that like conflict of like you know Yoshikazu by not undergoing like kind of the ceremony for the other worldly warriors uh, has like kind of this degradation rate like kind of this rate of like you know his body by not being able to acclimate to kind of the world around him like if he like you know overuses certain powers like he will get because like body will get corroded like he'll start to get like scars like a spider web type scar will appear on his chest and then like he'll really start to kind of suffer physically and so during the dungeon and like during overuse of like you know some high level powers like his rate goes up really high but like for his friends who have like gone through like the utter world the uh, warrior ceremony they don't have a corrosion rate anymore and so they don't have any problems leveling up or using high power skills but the trade-off to that it seems has to do with a connection whatever spirits are like possessing them or are like in kind of engineering or watching like them and during like this whole uh scheme of where they've been spirited away and for what purpose they've been spirited away to do whatever they're meant to do in this world so there's this intrigue there and there's also the intrigue of like the whole situation even that Yoshikazu has found himself in when he decided to enlist in the military because he ended up having a series of coincidences of like you know he ended up being Bert's roommate he ended up serving under like the corrupt general guy who mistreated him he ended up meeting Flynn who is like you know actually turns out to be a very poor person because she's like the princess of a ally country to the kingdom who like came to enlist as a soldier because she you know wants to she doesn't just want to like be a princess because you know she all, all that is expected of her was that she would marry off you know into for political connections but she has in, genuine interest in like dragon engineering and like she wants to be a supporter of that like she's super passionate about dragons like she gets so excited like when they get into the laboratory and they see like the dragon that they free a pilot and she's kind of jealous of Yoshikazu like being the one who like ends up being its kind of master and like kind of gets closest to it and stuff but like she wants to you know have her own independence and stuff like that but there's a the fact that he ends up in the same squad as her is also very suspicious. And the fact that they were transported to like level 25 when usually like those kind of trap items should only jump you up two levels or down two levels. Like the fact that they were transported that many levels down means that there was probably some interference like someone set them up and the fact that they were you know had to carry that specific weapon that only like high ranking squads were able to use 
You know, there are just all sorts of different conspiracy things, all sorts of different coincidences that seems to be trying to force Yoshikazu to convince him to, like, leave the military or, like, to punish him for having joined the military instead of taking on the job of being an otherworldly warrior. So it seems like he's going to have to continue to fight back against whatever forces are trying to, like, get rid of him or try to make him submit to just being a warrior like the rest of his classmates. So there's a lot of interesting story intrigue like he's kind of working now with the princes of the kingdom and Lila like kind of the her the prince's main lord god who's also kind of been keeping a watchful eye on Flynn and stuff like that so they're in on like what's going on with him they're trying to investigate alongside him and so yeah there's there's generally interesting like story intrigue uh, in terms of like the mysteries and mysteries going on in the world and I think the general central trio of Yoshikazu, Bert and Flynn are, are very compelling and I think generally support each other very well like during the dungeon arc like you know Philin has like it first feels like she you know it doesn't have a lot to contribute uh because she's not initially as strong as Bert or Yoshikazu so you can't fight back against monsters effectively but like Yoshikazu like supports her by like you know telling her hey you know we got this magic seed you learn magic and you learn skills and you know we'll help each other like level up and like generally like eventually Philin skills do pay off because she knows a lot about monsters she knows a lot about the dragons uh and so like they all are able to work together really effectively as a great unit and kind of lift each other up in terms of skills and terms of powers in order to help each other get out of the dungeon situation so they really become a really cool tight-knit unit so yeah i mean i generally am really intrigued by the story and generally uh really like the central characters so i am I really really enjoyed this this is probably my favorite of the series and i'm looking forward to seeing it goes and you know this is a pleasant surprise too because of course you know rising the shield hero had a lot of stuff that i wasn't big fan of a lot of stuff you know very rightfully called out for in terms of like you know some of the iffy stuff that could lean on misogynistic and a lot of stuff in terms of power dynamics and stuff and how it uses like the concepts of like slavery and stuff and that is just like really messy and you know so i was worried about this but generally like there have been no right flags for me with the series and in fact like it's just generally wholesome in terms of relationships with the characters so yeah I, I really enjoyed this and I would recommend it I think uh, it's a really charming Isekai story so far yeah um, I actually really enjoyed it the more I read it like I said I do prefer this over White Necromancer specifically and you know I'm not going to immediately like keep up with this week to week or however frequently it comes out but like you know if if I let enough chapters build up and like if I remember it I I might come back to this eventually I I would I would not mind reading the rest of this uh you 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 had me a dragon and mechs uh it, <laughs> I mean yeah. that's chapter 10 Oh man that's that's amazing. I again, I, I only read up to chapter seven, so I had no idea that was coming. Also, Bert is the best character in the series, and I will he, I I will not be debating this any further. He is adorbs, and of the series, he uh, picks up or gets adapted and gets merch for it. Yeah, I think Bert plutches are are definitely a cute choice. Oh yeah. And there's interesting, you know, there's also more interesting stuff with Bert, too, because, you know, he has, like, a wolfish tail, so there's more background to being, like, he might be, like, a mixed race of of orc and wolf. Maybe. Uh, so that could play an interesting thing down the line. So, yeah, that's, you know, there's interesting stuff in the series that, uh, about the characters, about, like, this, the stuff going around in the world. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I recommend it. I think it's a pretty cool, solid is guy story so far. No, for sure. 
Um, but we should really move on to Nanase-san's crazy love obsession. And I'm just going to put it out there real quick because I think this episode's going to come out before this is actually released. So I will give listeners just I will give listeners the option if you don't want to be spoiled on this at all and you want to wait until like maybe this is out, then this is your out to basically go to the end of the episode. Just wanted to give our listeners that option since it isn't out yet. But uh, yeah, why don't, why don't we talk about this? Yeah, so this is kind of a straightforward kind of crazy Yandere girlfriend story. Basically, you know, this guy, our protagonist, Takahashi, he's really overworked at his job. He's kind of like wasted, but he's kind of trapped in a job. Like he can't really quit because he doesn't have any time for it because he's <laughs> kept so busy working from his boss who like just keeps piling on work. Yep on him so he lurks late nights and he just doesn't have any time to like socialize or meet people and so his co-workers one day kind of rope him into joining like a dating app but he starts to scroll through people but like as he's doing it he's just kind of feeling like kind of disillusioned about like his life and stuff and he kind of accidentally writes you know i want to die basically <laughs> and actually sends that message to a girl is like, oh, crap. But then when you know what, that girl actually responds and says, hey, nice to meet you. You know, I'm. Uh, are you OK? You want to meet up? And he goes to meet this girl and she's in Naze and she's, you know, in college and seems to be an investor of some sort. But Naze generally just asks very uh, kind to Takashi and they eventually, you know, continue to meet up and hang out because she just happens seemingly to be free whenever he's free. So they're able to continue to form like a relationship and start dating a little bit but then at one point uh like he ends up needing to work late and has to like cancel on uh, her and then she like ends up being at his doorstep and he's like huh and it turns out that she moved in to an apartment like right across from him and she invites him over to her place and then he sees oh she has a bunch of my pictures just thrown up on the wall and her place is a total pig style and then she starts talking about how in love she is with him and kind of starts revealing like her like obsessive nature uh and how <laughs> how obsessed she is with him and that kind of scares her out like she comes out with like a body pillow with him so it's <laughs> like you know it's like he doesn't even comment on that but it's just like a guy that shows like how crazy she is with him he's too in shock and yeah so she, yeah he kind of gets kind of scared off by like how clingy how desperate she is about like wanting him to move in with her and stuff and so he decides to kind of like uh you know pull the relationship off but when she know it you know uh like there seems to be no way to really see like he keeps ending up going back to her and so far it seems to just be coincidence of oh like his building is gets shut down because it's so old so now he has no place to live and then he loses his wallet so he can't continue to pay for living in a net cafe so he you know just happens to meet her like when she is like sees him in the rain like invites him back to her place and you know he has to he has no other choice to impose upon her and so you know it's kind of leading up to us trying to figure out really you know as readers like what is Nanazi's game because it seems very clear that she seems to be manipulating things in his life to her advantage perhaps she has a more of a hand in what's going on in his life that even he realizes that might get explored later but she is actively sabotaging his attempts to get 
get away from her. Yep. Like when he tries to move out into a new place, like she shows up to the meeting with his prospective roommates and introduces them to two other people and like gets them to back away instead. And so like eventually he kind of ends up feeling indebted enough to Nanaze for like looking out and giving a place to stay and also generally improving some of his like lifestyle behaviors like telling him hey don't respond to your boss like just take this time off and then have a good night's sleep and that actually affects like his performance at work the next day he's actually more productive and he's able to go home in time even though his boss tries to overwork him like usual so uh, because of that like he starts to believe huh maybe Nanaze might not be so bad after all but yeah so it seems like she is trying to emotionally manipulate him but we don't know like to what extent or to what extreme so that's kind of the, the game the series is playing, I think, you know, just trying to figure out the enigma that is Nanaze and like what she really wants, why she is so obsessed with him, and like how far she is going to go to keep him uh, attached to her and keep him indebted to her and like have no other choice to accept to be with her. And so an interesting wrench in the, the dynamic is been introduced with his sister Mashiro, who might have some protectiveness over her brother or might you know just be generally just sus about you know Nazanaze because you know her, her brother has never like been close with women so she's trying to figure out what's really going on and that's where we're been left off with the chapters we've uh, gotten to read so far so yeah I think generally like I enjoy Yandere psycho type stories uh, they can be fun to read to figure out like how far how crazy a person will go and uh yeah so far i'm interested in seeing where this goes what ninazi's ultimate game is and the push and pull of like her being kind of kind to takashi at one moment but then like revealing like you know some of her darker impulses the next so yeah it's like still early to tell like what direction ultimately the series goes but i think it definitely is like okay so ninazi is and that seems clearly, I think, meant to be portrayed as kind of like a manipulative type of antagonist character. Like, generally, she's been helpful as I, but I think, you know, she is definitely trying to make it so Takashi has no other choice but to be with her. To make it so that, like, he, she, he is the only one he can turn to in his life. And so... I'm interested to see how, you know, Mashiro, like what she'll do to Mashiro, what she'll try to do to scare Mashiro away. Uh, and I'm interested to see like how Takashi will escape in a relationship or if he'll ended up just folding into it. And so it's kind of like this interesting codependent relationship type stuff that uh, I find interesting to follow. I'm curious to see where it'll go. And that way it kind of, you know, is part of why I found Killer and Love kind of interesting and seeing like, you know, these characters are codependent on each other and they're in like kind of this emotionally kind of manipulative type of relationship, but they don't quite seem to realize and quite seem to realize that one character might not be totally honest with the other. So I'm, uh, I'm interested. I'm interested where this goes. Uh, okay, confession time. Uh, I was looking this up while you were talking, and uh, I don't know how this happened, but I think uh, when I went to go take a look at the chapters that Mangamo sent us, I think when I originally downloaded some of our files that we were sent, I think I only had access to the first two chapters, and I had no idea that more chapters posted after that. Well, so that's not too uh, surprising, because, I mean, originally we were only sent the first two chapters. Okay. 
but we later they sent us uh, other three chapters in the folder they gave us. Okay, yeah, I I must have I I didn't I didn't check the folder after I initially downloaded cha- uh, these chapters, so I I only got to read the first two, but that's fine because uh, I got to be honest, I think out of the four series that we had to talk about from Mangamo uh, on this episode, I think I am the most interested in keeping up with this one a little bit more regularly. Mm. Actually, because like you said, I'm very interested in like how far this girl is willing to go to be with Takahashi in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't know. I'm just I'm just really interested in seeing where this goes. I might I might actually I I have the best chance of keeping up with this a little uh, more frequently than the rest of them comparatively, I think. But that's just me personally. Yeah, this is another one that's pretty easy to read. Like, it flows pretty well. It's not too text-dense. It has pretty clean, easy-to-follow art. So it's a, it's another kind of brisk read, I think. Mm-hmm, for sure. You know, and also, again, the hook of the chapter is pretty engaging. So you want to, like, see, okay, what's going to happen next? Like, it has a good cliffhanger. Like, at the end of chapter three, like, Nazi says, okay, I'm going to punish you for trying to leave me. And if she brings out this dog call, and you're like, okay, <laughs> okay, is she going to, like, show her hand? But then, of course, you know, it, the situation immediately deflated, but not completely, because she's still, like, passive aggressive throughout mm. uh, the following situ- chapter and the situation there. But, yeah, you know, it's it's a character like Inazi is like kind of fun to figure out, like, what their game is and, like, what she ultimately is going to try to do to keep, like, the object or profession close to her. And also, you know, it's kind of interesting to try and figure out, like, why she's so obsessed with Takashi in particular. Yeah, yeah. Is it because she recognizes in Takashi someone who is, like, isolated and alone enough that she can, like, kind of completely monopolize his life and uh, control him and have, like, a controlling, possessive love, and that's what she's interested in having? Like, it's it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to find out, like, why she is so obsessed with Takashi, why she seems it says she is so in love with him and what her like ultimate real goal with their relationship is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Overall, again, I, I feel bad that I, uh, I didn't check our, uh, uh, folder again to see if more chapters got, uh, updated, but, uh, Again, from what I read, I, I liked it. Uh, the first two chapters, I think, are a good enough hook. At least they were for me, anyway, to see whether I should read more or not. So, just on the strength of the first two alone, I'm I'm willing to read more. So, there's that. Yeah. I think, overall, it was uh, cool to get some early sneak peeks at these Mangamo titles and check them out. And I'm glad they're adding some new stuff on there. Like, it's been a while, I feel, since we've really checked in on Mangamo. Yeah. And, you know, taken a look at some of their exclusives. So I think they've chosen, like, an interesting selection of titles. And even though there are some we might have felt were stronger than others, I think that there's still a decent variety of things to check out. And hopefully they continue to add some uh, cool new titles going forward as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big thanks to Mangamo for giving us early access to some of these series in particular. We really appreciate it. And I'm sure I'm sure in the future, if we can make time for it, we'll we'll talk about more Mangamo exclusives because we barely even like scratch the surface on like what's available on Mangamo just in general. So hopefully we can come back to Mangamo eventually. But uh Yeah, I guess until then, you know, basically, if you're interested in any series we've talked about on this episode, we will definitely leave links in the show notes for this episode as to uh, where you could read all of these. So yeah, I think it's safe to say we recommend at least most of the stuff we talked about in this episode. So go ahead and go read some manga. Yeah, we covered quite a lot of manga, like a dozen different titles this time from a lot of different places. So I'd like to 
be able to spotlight titles from, you know, more than just Jump. So it's great that we continue to get new simulpubs and new interesting series from all sorts of places now to kind of spotlight. No, for sure. And yeah, nice variety of titles to talk about, I think, in terms of subject matter and content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Good variety. We hope you guys enjoyed our Simulpubs Roundup. Once again, we had a dozen really interesting titles to talk about, and we had a lot of fun talking about it. Most especially, want to once again thank Mongabo for their early access to their new theories, and they were a lot of fun to read and discuss. I think we got some good convo out of them, especially. And looking forward to seeing what more editions come to Mongabo in the future that we may also get a chance to talk about on the show as well. But before we wrap up and head out, once again, I want to give some community shout-outs and related to the In Memoriam segment in which we discussed Keiko Nobunoda's passing, I wanted to really just recommend a collection of retrospectives on Keiko Nobumoto and her body of work. And I won't go too into detail about each of these individually, other than saying that I think they all did a really great job of approaching her career and her writing and what made it so interesting and so powerful in very compelling ways. And I think they all did really great jobs in their write-ups and approaching it from slightly different perspectives and angles. And those articles that I want to recommend are Caitlin Murr's Retrospective on Keiko Nogomoto for Anime Feminist, the ANN Retrospective on Keiko Nogomoto and Her Humanist Legacy by Bella B., Collider's Retrospective on Keiko Nobumoto's Career by David Lin, which was actually written before she passed away, which was prescient timing, but still a very good retrospective on her career. That's absolutely worth reading. All of the anime did a great retrospective on Keiko Nobumoto as well. And finally, I wanted to recommend Wise Cafe's article on Keiko Nogomoto and specifically through the lens of revisiting Tokyo Godfathers and looking at her legacy from the perspective on her writing on that film. So all of these pieces, I really enjoyed reading their thoughts on Nobumoto's writing, what it meant to the authors in particular, and like just looking at the scope of her career and the impact she left in all the series that she had a hand in. I think these are really great pieces and great primers on her and her body of work for those interested in learning more about her and then seeking out a series or revisiting them from there. And there have been so many pieces that have also been done on Cowboy Bebop in particular recently, but I will save a lot of those for a different time, especially since there's been so many I'm still working my way through a lot of them. But for pieces on Noble Mode in particular, those five articles, I highly, highly recommend giving a read. All very superb uh, writing on her. And that will do it for my community shoutouts for this episode. And I think we can head now into the wrap-up of our show. 
All right. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We had a lot of fun uh, catching up on a bunch of simulpubs. And uh, next week, we still have a bit of catch up to do because we have a lot of news to talk about next time. So much so that, uh, I don't know, it's just it's just a lot of news. But we have a lot of really cool news to talk about. A lot of, a lot of Jump Festa stuff we have to go over. So A lot of anime news. A lot yes. of anime news. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, that's what you can look forward to next week on the podcast, but until then, uh, I think we can head on out of here and plug our stuff. Lum, why don't we start with you? Where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lum Mariasha on Twitter. It's Lum Mariasha on a variety of places like Animation Revelation, Andy Lesson, Letterboxd. Wherever there's a Lum Mariasha, there you can find me. You can read my reviews on MungaNerds.com. We got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out, so look forward to more on there. That's also where you can find Lum Squad, the Yurisiyatsura focused podcast I do with my good friend Andrew AC Yoshimura. We've been having a lot of fun covering Viz's releases of the manga as well as the movies now that they are available on Crunchyroll streaming and on Discotheque on Blu-ray. And we are, of course, incredibly excited for the new Yorziatra series that was just announced and will be coming later this year. And you can be sure that we will devote some extensive coverage on that when it comes out on our podcast. So definitely, if you're into all things Yorziatra, old conversation, the manga and the anime, we'd love for you to check out our show because we have a lot of fun doing it. We're really excited to talk about even more about the series this year since it's going to be a big year for the series. And if you want to check out my art, if you like the art I do for our podcasts, the thumbnails I draw, or the illustrations and animations I make in particular, you can find all that stuff on my Instagram at SidArtworks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You could find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host produce a lot of other podcasts on the side besides this one that you could find over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com, where I have a page dedicated to whatever podcast I'm doing at the moment. And you can basically find all my other stuff up there. I'm not going to list every single podcast I'm on because that would take up a lot of time. Again, if you're interested in any of my other podcasts, that's at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Click the podcast page. You'll find all my other stuff. Uh, but as for Manga Mavericks, you could find every episode at mangamavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash mavericks. Uh, where at the $2 tier in particular, you will have the chance to listen to select episodes of the podcast, depending on when we have them edited and when they're ready. If we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited and ready before it's supposed to go up on our main feed, we will put it up on there first. But admittedly, that also kind of depends on our schedule and how much we have ready at any given point. So if you want more reliable content, you want to sign up for our $5 tier, where basically we upload a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. I mentioned at the top of the show that we did a huge Shonen Jump retrospective, our third annual Shonen Jump retrospective with our good friend Maxi Bernard from Friendship Ever Victory. That podcast in particular, actually, uh, we have available for as low as a dollar because uh, every year when we record a Shonen Jump retrospective, we like to make that as available as possible for patrons old and new as a thanks for uh, signing up and as a thanks for being signed on for as long as you have. And uh, yeah, you can listen to that for as low as a dollar. Uh, as low as a dollar, you can listen to us talk about Show to Jump for over three and a half hours. I think that's a pretty a sweet deal if I say so myself. Um, but you can also listen to a bunch of our other bonus podcasts we've uploaded over the past couple of years. We, we, we've, we've recorded and done so many bonus podcasts at this point. 
I, I like to think it's a pretty good deal for, for $5 a month. Um, but it really, no matter what tier you sign up for at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, we really appreciate it. Uh, it really helps us keep the lights on, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, like we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, it helps us uh, replace old equipment and everything. Like, what whatever money we make on our Patreon, we always put back into the show. So no matter what amount you sign up for on Patreon, we really appreciate it and cannot thank you guys enough. But as for everything else, you could follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or at Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks where we upload different excerpts of the podcast and sometimes even some exclusive content. Again, youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Subscribe to us. Uh, email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. You know, uh, do you have any thoughts on any of the simulpubs we covered this episode? Uh, do you want to tell us what you're reading in general? Is there anything that you're reading that you want us to cover on the podcast, baby? Uh, you know, email us anything about manga or the podcast, and we'll read it on the show. We love getting emails. Again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Please send us an email. Um, but the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Basically, we're on a bunch of different platforms at this point as far as podcasts go, but especially on Apple Podcasts, we would love a rating and a review because, you know, it helps the visibility of our show. And we also just love getting feedback from you guys uh, because any feedback we get from you guys, we want to use to make the show as good as possible. Um, so, yeah, just leave us that if you have the chance. And uh, I think that's going to be about it for this episode of the podcast. This has been episode 185 of the Manga Mavericks podcast. We'll see you guys next time for episode 186. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.